welcome to our table, our new primitive friend. Wait. What? We cannot break bread with you. Huh? Becky, what's going on? You have taken the land which is rightfully ours. Years from now, my people will be forced to live in mobile homes, on reservations. Your people will wear cardigans and drink highballs. We will sell our bracelets by the roadsides. You will play golf and enjoy hot hors d'oeuvres. My people will have pain and degradation. Your people will have stick shifts. The gods of my tribe have spoken. They have said, do not trust the pilgrims, especially Sarah Miller. Gary, she's changing the words. And for all these reasons, I've decided to scalp you and burn your village to the ground. month of this now and uh it's our thanksgiving day spectacular and what do we do on thanksgiving you know we sh you know share the things that we're thankful for we and we you know talk to guests from different cultures different places you know that's what the spirit of thanksgiving is all about you know not imperialism not you know gorging ourselves nothing like that this is all about positivity here on mex flintayo don't listen to the haters uh, anyways i'm here as always, Ramon Villalobos, joined by Daniel Irizarri. Hello. And very special guest, somebody that we've wanted to have on for quite a while, even though we've only been doing this for a few weeks. It's a friend of mine who I met because she was reviewing my comics when they first came out and was extremely positive. And when you give extremely positive reviews to my books, we're friends for life, you know? And, you know, but not just a good review, like an incredible, well thought out review, probably the best reviews that I was getting. And then she transitioned from doing that to making her own autobio comics and all kinds of other cool things. Please welcome Emma Hubois. Oh my goodness, you pronounced my name right. That's so exciting. Thank what you. What are you talking about? How else would I pronounce it? Oh my God. Welcome to the pod. I have heard like all kinds of things, all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, actually, like, I was really hyped to get to, I, I guess it, it must have been E is for Extinction, because I was actually yeah. trying to think back, like, when was the first actual comic of yours that I reviewed, because, like, I had known of you through, like, just seeing, like, Tumblr shit going around in some of, like, your fan art. Um, and like your, like your wrestling stuff. I didn't even necessarily... The old Tumblr stomping grounds. Yeah, I didn't even yeah. necessarily like realize that some of it was yours until you would post like some of your old CM Punk shit. And I was like, what? That was Ramon this entire time? Tumblr was where I learned to be problematic and then not problematic, you know? Yeah, it's... You walk the line. <laughs> it's... That's it. Court the chaos. It's very that, like Tumblr is like, like the, like the Red Room. For like, um, <laughs> wait, like fuck Black the Red Widow. Room, fuck Ed Piscor. 
you know um it's <laughs> it's it's just that this place yeah like it's what like, wait what is a red i think i think i think she means twin peaks do you mean twin no, the twin peaks red room no maybe i'm using the wrong term but it's a black widow thing it's it's this in the movie black widow um in the comics i think it goes back to the oh. comics it's this weird like psychedelic clockwork orange thing that kind of like makes them what they are if i understand correctly and i think it actually oh. is going to be in the movie um but that movie hasn't come out already no spoilers for the black widow movie yeah right it's i'm joking well if you've seen the street fighter movie kind of like what i have movie... seen the street fighter okay movie. well you know how like blanca like gets like trained mm. to kill and shit it's kind of like that tumblr's just mm-hmm. this sensory overload <laughs> right where you just get all this shit beaten into you and you kind of learn like these weird politics and community dynamics and really fucking warped like feminist praxis and stuff and then hope- and hopefully there's a there's a Dalzim there that will give you a little <laughs> bit of good things. Yeah, you know what I loved uh, about yeah. that Street Fighter while movie? you're being hypnotized. You know what I loved about the Street Fighter movie was the casting choice of Miklo from Blood and Blood Out as Ken, because they <laughs> said that like Ken is Latino. He's Latinx. He's Hell yeah, unproblematic. It's Ken, but with a Q U. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Ken. It's Ken. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So. Th- like I think you must have known my stuff through Tumblr, uh, but yeah, that's like it's it's an interesting place to sort of come up, and I don't think there's a real like analog for it now. Like you know, no. Twitter is not really the same. Like you can sort of be super problematic on Twitter, but if you're like, what when I came, when I got on Tumblr, I remember that was a very like interesting point in my life where I wasn't doing shit. I was at home, and I felt like I could have been on like the alt right pipeline if it existed. And instead, it was just like, you know, like you said, the opposite, where it was just like nothing but hardcore sort of like feminist, you know, like anti-racial, like, you know, like, you know, we're going to kill homophobia and transphobia and all that shit. And like, so I just read that. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, like my mind was mush. I just wanted to draw cool and get notes. That's all. Notes. Living for the notes. That's it. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I mean, I it's really funny because, like, I came to Tumblr from Gaia. Um, <laughs> Gaia was, like, my big hangout. And there was, like... Oh. Gaia Online, is that... Yeah, yeah. And there was, like, there was, like 12 people who talked about American comics on there because, obviously, it was, like, an anime <laughs> zone. So, like, it was tight-knit, but also, like, very combative. And, like, that's, like, when I was, you know, kind of coming into my own of, of being, like, trans and stuff. And, like... That was, like, a tough space to try to do that in, even though, like, you know, we were all, like, doing superhero role plays, but it's just kind of, mm. like, people still had, like, bonkers ideas. It's, like, we were all, like, pretending to play, like, superheroes of genders that were different than our own, and it's, so it's, like, yeah. we, they couldn't make the leap and stuff. And this was, like, more of, like, for most American comics fans, this was sort of, like, in the live journal fandom days, so things weren't really, like polarized politically or organized around feminism or things like that yet yeah um and so like i was kind of like nearing the end of my time in that kind of space and so i kind of went into tumblr and was like finding all that type of stuff you're talking about and i was like i don't need to get into involved in this shit i'm just gonna listen i'm just gonna sit back and listen and absorb right and i like came back radicalized as fuck starting (laughs) fights everywhere and it was just like I don't, I don't, like, it was probably an arc that anybody who knew me at the time was like, yeah, this makes sense that she's just going to come back, like, swinging with this, like, 
fully <laughs> radicalized point of view. And and so eventually then it was just like Tumblr and, you know, off-life carries you. But it's just, it's so fascinating that like Tumblr is, is it's such an ambivalent space for anybody who experienced it between like when it launched in, I don't know, like 2006 and when like the yeah. porn ban came down. <laughs> Yeah, because, well, yeah, for the me, band killed it. Oh, for yeah. me, Tumblr. I'm actually back on Tumblr. I'm I'm not posting my own art, but I'm like back to reblogging my shit, mm. uh, like other other people's like art that I like. But like Tumblr kind of ended for me as soon as I got a job making comics. So I'm like, oh, I did it then. All right then, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> and when like for a long time, Tumblr, I had like five thousand followers, and Twitter, I had like one thousand followers. And as soon as Twitter got higher than Tumblr. I was like, burn it to the ground. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> but that's only because, like, I just, I'm lazy. You know what I mean? Like, I only have. Yeah, it's hard to maintain more. I only than have the bandwidth for one social media platform. Yeah. Speaking of which, recently in the news, in the comics news, we're not like a news podcast, but there's been one guy who's been having a moment. A man <laughs> who lives on social media, a man who, like, inhabits many different forms on it. You know, I don't, I don't know all of them because, like I said, I'm only on Twitter. But I, I heard he's just like fucking popping all over the place. And uh, Emma, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on a trans voice in the community is because uh, there was some backlash against him. Of course, I'm talking about Dan Slott, Marvel comic writer for Fantastic Four, and I guess something else. But um, he's done a bunch of stuff. And can you explain that what happened a little bit? Because I. Honestly, I heard a little bit about it, and I guess I was like, "Oh, that's a little weird." And I don't, I don't think Daniel knows much about it at all. I, I, I don't know too much about Dance Law. I know that he is, he is a small man. <laughs> <laughs> He's large in stature, though. You have to give him that. This man. He's had a a, a wide career, <laughs> but he is s- small in other ways. Well, um. Yeah, so like just to tell pre- us about it, Emma. Yeah, just yeah. Tell us about the tell us about the controversy before we get into the documentary that was put out. Yeah, and well, I don't know really too much about the documentary. I've watched but... it. I'll give us the cliff notes, but <laughs> no, that's fair. But like, just to preface this, and and this is in no way any shade for you guys. Like, ask me to talk about it. It's fine. Like, it's completely chill. Um, oh yeah. There's a rationale for why I think it's worth talking about, but at the same time, I just do want to preface this by saying that like. Me talking about anything that Dan Slott does has the same exact energy as the time that Judith Butler did a review of Barry Weiss's book. Okay. Who's Judith Butler? Who? Ramon. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you are you asking for the audience? So yeah, you're yeah, asking yeah, for yeah. the audience. Oh, okay. No, I'm asking for the audience. I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. excuse He's me. me. <laughs> you haven't seen Drag Race Season 9. You should know who Judith Butler is. Sasha uh, Ballure right. almost did her for Snatch Game. No, Judith Butler is like, she's a really famous a like feminist intellectual who really came up in the '90s um, with a book called Gender Trouble, and like forms. Well, wait, why don't you just say the person that Sasha Ballure was going to do for Snatch Game? Of course, I would have got that. I, I guess so. Sorry, <laughs> right? Should have started with that. But she's like, she's she's like an extremely um, intellectual feminist who like. A lot of people are like, oh, she's too dense to read. She's too lofty, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, you know, I, I could get into that another time. But, like, she is very well regarded, a, like, very intelligent, very intellectual person. And, like, Barry Weiss just does, like, gutter stuff. Like, just gutter stuff. She's a clown. She's a clown. 
But like, Butler, she's a gutter clown. She's you know, a gutter clown. Yeah, but like, Butler, shout out JB and Ken. <laughs> Sorry, that's okay. Yeah, those are the good gutter boys. No good gutter clowns. But go ahead. Um, but yeah, so like, she she saw clearly that there was something like dangerous. Or, or worth digging into to, to diffuse in Barry Weiss's work. So she's like, okay, fine, I'm going to go do this. But it was just so, just, just leagues, fathoms beneath her. And, like, right. I don't mean to say this in terms of, because there are, like, other critics who are, like, trans and, and other, and, like, not cis who, like, dig into slot stuff. I'm like, that's fine. You know, it's that's also beneath them to a certain degree in terms of, like, what their faculties are, what they could be doing otherwise. And sure. that's, that's what's always frustrating about this stuff. And that's why, like, I don't know, my, like, time as, like, a quote-unquote critic is done. Because I just refuse to expend the energy on these people to that degree anymore. Sure. Um, but, like, the thing with... Okay, so Dance Lot's writing Fantastic Four right now. Got it. Um, that much I do know. And, oh my god, is it forgettable. I read this, in, like, almost this entire <laughs> issue... And it's just kind of like you, you wouldn't pay attention to it otherwise, right? I mean, you know, like Valeria um, Richards, like she, she goes to this portal to visit some dude she had a crush on. And he's like, hi, in my place, I'm polyamorous. I have many lovers and you will be one of them too. And then she comes back crying, oh no, boys are bad. Boys suck. <laughs> and I'm just real? like, I'm just thinking back to like when Matt Fraction was writing this character or like when Jonathan Hickman was and like, she was Dr. Doom's protege, and Salt really reduced her down to this one note. And I could just, I was like, so this is what it felt like when Stan Lee was writing um, Sue Storm in the 60s, right? <laughs> and so it's just like, the, the, this stuff is just, I don't even know why Marvel publishes comics like this. Like, they're just, it's costing them money. And like, do people what read is this? The, what is like, so what is the story of that issue, though? Um, I don't even know, Ramon. Like, like because there's is it like just four... like continuity comics where it's just like kind of, okay, yeah. there's like we we're like is fitting... there an arc? Is there an arc to what Dan Slott has been trying to do with the Fantastic Four I here? Like so. one of his defenses online was that he was he was setting up a story and that that this was just a part of. But I have well, like the, the the Franklin Richards thing, which is the meat of this, is like right. a plot bunny for future stuff. Like it is a lead in to something, but there's like four different things going on, and none of them are very compelling, um, and they they don't really interact well. I don't think so. It, it, it's kind of tough because I just read this one issue, but I guess that I guess there was some lead in from a previous comic that was not written by Dan Slott that like. And I honestly, I don't think Dan Slott came up with this idea on his own. And I don't know, but it, it seems to me like somebody in editorial was like, so we have this whole Krakoa situation with like this breakaway society with the mutants. So we have to account for where all of them fall in with the Krakoan status quo. And Franklin Richards has ostensibly been a mutant for probably like 20 or 30 years. I have never actually read a comic that's about like the Franklin Richards stuff. So yeah. I don't really know that whole thing, but apparently mm -hmm. he's a mutant, right? All I know is that he's like the inspiration for the baby in um, the Incredibles. Mm -hmm. But like, so I think that's what happened. They were like, we need to figure out where someone needs to come down and sort out where Franklin Richards sits in the Krakoan situation. Is he in? Is he out? Everybody has to be. 
so it sets up this like he has this psychic interaction with professor x which is like you know like the creepy big helmet version in the like spandex suit that hickman's been doing since house of x started okay um and like so franklin i guess has not been able to access his mutant powers for a while i don't know where that started but see so he goes to professor x to help him with it professor x is like well so what we figured out is that you can't use your mutant powers because you're not actually a mutant and he says the whole what we figured out was that the whole thing is that you felt different and alienated and you needed something to to like make you feel better so you all so you subconsciously altered your own dna to give yourself the x gene which has since reverted back and then xavier says so we want nothing to do with you bye and that's the entire mm. thing it's one page it's four dialogue bubbles and it's like so i i can see a world where it's like we need to sort this out have slot do it and he'll mm. do it you know so i don't think that, that there was any like malice planned here but it just yeah. it doesn't work for so many ways and it, and it just blows up in too many bad directions if you think about it for longer than 30 seconds um yeah. like do you know why franklin richards has become like uh like a, a character that trans people relate to like is it no not that i know of um I mean, we are very powerful, and we do warp reality, <laughs> but lame. Um, you know what I mean? But no, it, and it doesn't really have anything to do with a specific attachment to the character, at least not from, like, my analysis of it, and I've never heard of a trans reading of Franklin Richards before. Um, sure. Not to say there isn't one out there, but who knows? You, you can make a case for yeah, anything yeah. you want. It's chill. But, like... More to the point, and, and, and here's the thing, before I get into to why it becomes an issue for trans readers, or really any queer readers uh, um, altogether, because I have heard, like, cis bisexual people, you know, feeling a certain kind of way about this, um, and just kind of that exclusionary drop from Professor X, but, like, so people are like, why are you making it about trans stuff? Why are you making it about queer stuff? And the thing is, is that, like, Marvel fired the first shot on this. Right. They, right. like, I can't remember who actually wrote it, because I thought it was Claremont, but, I, I, but maybe it isn't. But, like, you go back to the um, legacy virus, right? Like, it was a clear analog for the AIDS virus, right? Sure. And the AIDS virus affects everybody, right? But culturally, it was, quote-unquote, the gay virus for a long time. And so that was a big turning point where it was, like, the focus of the quote-unquote mutant metaphor is LBGT stuff, right? Like, it just is from now on. Mm -hmm. And Why was that? Because I think it was like a... It was a clunkier metaphor first for, like, being, like, African-American during the Civil Rights Yeah, it, it did transition from racism to to LGBTQ plus I mean, par partially, I think, because, because LGBTQIA+, you know, that, that readership in the 70s was, like, you know... They're, they were so big. You know what I mean? Like, there was a lot of those people reading, uh, like, that and Legion of Superheroes. And that they're like, you know, the companies are like, well, fuck it. Like, have Dave Cockrum draw some cool shit then, you know? Like, I don't think... Like you said, Marvel fired the first shot. Yeah. Marvel has been saying these people are the marginalized community of this universe since the mm -hmm. inception of the X-Men. No. Like, 
Um, I do want to push back on that a little bit, just okay. because of, like, you know, the, the history of self-mythologizing of, like, Stan Lee. Like, you know, R.I.P., no offense, you know, like, the dude did some good shit. Um, so I don't yeah. want to be one of those, like, pure Stan Lee haters, you know, Jack Kirby lionizers, right? Like, there is some nuance to explore. There, There's, a you know, a decent amount of value to the things that Stan Lee's done. But, like, if you go back and, and, like, I have the essential axiom in the first one. You go back and, like, there is no oppression metaphor going on here. They're just, like, cool. You don't think so? Re- the, no. People don't like In the them. original ones? No. I like, know, no. I, right. I, I agree with you, Emma. All right. It's more of, like, a teen culture, right? It's more sure. of, like, oh, a hip yeah. teen culture. And That's kind fair. of the uneasiness that the established yeah. culture had when, like, teenager was first becoming like a social category in the 60s because they were starting to have their own part-time jobs they could have their own money develop their own habits so it was more of like an intergenerational beef which is obviously like what the legion of superheroes has always primarily been and always i think that's super fair and then they just retrofitted it right like yeah they were like well we have this this did take place in the 60s but you're right because like teen titans and like all that stuff was the same thing it was just like Hey, the kids are doing it. Like, fuck you, adults. Whatever, whatever. I think that's true. My bad. No, no. It, it was later. No, it was good. later on that it, that it got turned into uh, the the sort of racial metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Was it was it like burn specifically or like the Claremont Claremont arc? See that, that did that. See the thing is, I don't really know because my X Men reading before like Grand Wars. Yeah, we're we're all talking fun. about our sort of ideas of X Men, yeah. and I haven't read mo- most of the Claremont stuff either. Like I, I, mean, I get it. For that. I get it from the animated series. Uh, Same Beast monologue. Beast talking Absolutely. about like do do I not bleed red? Like That's, that that to me like touches to the core. That was my Martin Luther King, my Malcolm X. <laughs> saying that. Absolutely, I felt, that. I felt it in my heart. <laughs> but um. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, it's funny, I was on book. an X-Men panel after I had done that X-Men book. They were like, oh, you want to be on a panel? I think I like Heroes. And everybody on the panel, they're like, hardcore X-Men fans that worked on the books. And I'm like, I've read the Morrison X-Men stuff, and like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have not read anything else. Sorry. Ramon, like, you you're, like, read... you're like, and, and then in the animated series, when Morph is alive, that shit, that shit was that fucked shit touched up. Me. Somebody actually, like, at that show bought me a trade of uh, Phoenix Saga because they could not believe I had not read it. And I was like, all right, thanks, man. And I still haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Phoenix Saga guy uh, for doing shout that. shout out. No, they're, they're cool fans. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, the, you're right. Like it, But Marvel, the point is Marvel said this is the marginalized community in the yeah. universe. Like, not, not at its inception. But in general, yeah. But in the comics, in the comics, when they transitioned to that, uh, the the virus, there there was a transition in the conversation about how how mutants were seen, which is what we were uh talk what what you were talking about, Emma. Exactly, and like the thing is, is that every time that this has been accessed since, it always has to do like it's a very specific like marginalization and outside pressure frame. Which is extremely frustrating because if you look at the examples of like wh- like where did they go next with that? I mean, I don't really know if God Loves Man Kills was about like se- segregation or queer shit or just like stuff, right? I mean, obviously, like in twenty twenty, like he looks like Mike Pence, so we've kind of decided that God Loves Man yeah. Kills is is about that now because that's what resonates now. But you look at like the Gifted arc, 
of Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men. Mm-hmm. Right? I was thinking about that just now as we were talking about, like, the curing. Yeah, curing. It's, it's, it's about yeah. two different things. It's, it's about conversion therapy, but it's also just about the born-this-way frame, which, and mm-hmm. that was, like, that was, a like, just a cultural moment that happened to link up easily with how the X-Men were. Because the X-Gene, I think, has pretty much been there since day one. So, like, when people were arguing queerness as like at the there like there have being some kind of like a biological chromosomal you know backbone to same gender attraction it's like we can't help it we are this so acknowledge us um it's certainly linked up with the x-men and the x gene right but it's like we don't mm-hmm. really use the born this way frame anymore and one of the major reasons why we don't use the born this way frame anymore is because of trans issues, right? right and because right. of the way the anti-trans rhetoric is tied to, well, you're chromosomally this, right? Yeah. You were born with this set of genitals, right? And, and so those two frames do not work together. So then we get back to a part where like, mutants as a queer metaphor are just like it's just always going to be fundamentally unsettled and janky because you have this this concept of this chromosomal designation um that does not jive with the community with the present understanding that the community um is pointing to and so it's kind of like well okay so so what does that mean for franklin richards where do we get into conversations about validity in the community um and i wrote about this a lot when like man eaters came out and like this is what i mean about just stuff being like we shouldn't have to talk about this we shouldn't have to bring it up people should do the research and right. just you know so it, it, it's why i don't like do this stuff anymore because it just sucks coming in and being like a janitor for like cisgender bullshit right yeah, sorry about that. No, but... no, it's, it's chill. It's chill. It's not your fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it... I mean, we're, like, we're talking about other stuff too in a second. But oh, like, yeah. I, I brought you on specifically because I want like this to be a conversation that we have on a podcast like this. No, and I want to so, have this conversation. Yeah. And I always want to emphasize any time that I bring these things up that I have things I'd rather talk about and just point <laughs> right. out the fact that we could be vibing about other shit. But... Yeah. The problems here are so acute that they deserve talking about. And the thing is, the reason why I actually do want to talk about this one particular thing is that I want to validate the concerns of the people that brought it up, the people who are invested, because I'm not invested in this. Because they're getting so much shit, like from Dan Slott himself. And so to me, the bigger threat here than like the janky shit with the really bad implications that he actually wrote like that that does play into a lot of harmful narratives within like trans discourse but to me the more acute threat to the trans community is that i already know of at least two trans prominent critics who have been like repeatedly harassed and chased across social media platforms by slot himself just for criticizing him, no matter what the basis of that critique was. So when I so- see someone who's engaging in the same pattern that's been used again and again and again to drive my trans peers out of this industry and to silence their criticisms, I absolutely positively have to stand up on that basis alone. So to me, that kind of interpersonal shit and that kind of like social media bullying is more acute 
than the dumb stuff that happened in a comic book. I always want to bring this back to the material conditions of the trans people who participate in this community. I never want that to be lost sight of whenever I talk about these things. The real people are always more important than the two-dimensional drawings that sell lunchboxes and light tickets to Disneyland. Um, yeah. Which, like, I'm sure we can all... Oh, man. all I, I know that you guys obviously yeah. agree with that, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But it's just, <laughs> right. it's always something like it's an affirmation. It's a thing to keep you grounded. But, like, the funny thing is, is that if, like, Dan Slott knew his shit, he could have pulled the scene off. And, like, I don't want to be a backseat editor, but, like, this is a setup yeah. for a really good joke. So, like, he could have done this. He could have had Xavier say this. And th- and this could have been a better setup. Because, like, everybody always has that excuse. Like, yes, it looks janky now, but it'll look better in the future. It's like, no, work on your setup. Understand how your setup could fuck people up and not being like, oh, you know, I'll pay you next week. Like, you are not Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, right? Like, do not do that. Like, just running the, this hustle that you come Now with, you're talking our language. Now right? you're talking the language yeah. of guys on twitter who are, are gonna listen to this yeah i disagree <laughs> um <laughs> but that's that's what this is whenever people come up with a shitty premise for a story that's gonna go to bad places they say just next month it'll look better next month it'll look better and it never does like chelsea kane said this is beginning man eaters it just got worse um <laughs> you know and it's like who knows whether the kid under the unicorn mask was ever actually supposed to be trans or not i don't think so i think she was like shit i need to pull something out now yeah right and it's just like here's my furby um but <laughs> but you know but like so you i could picture this and because i thought way too hard about this comic um but i'm like thinking here and i'm just like there's a version of this story where like professor x is a stand-in for somebody like buck angel um okay i I, I, I do know buck angel i've watched you know uh riley grace i forget her last name she's like a trans uh twitch streamer youtuber Mm -hmm. Uh, she had she had on she had on buck angel and um calvin guara another you know trans youtuber but sort of like uh he was doing he was doing videos with like blair white and he he's sort of like what he's become more to the left because of these conversations mm-hmm. but but he had a argument debate with buck angel on she moderated a debate between them yeah so like i i watched like three hours of this conversation and i wanted to like put my head through the fucking wall but i so i could totally see how that could be xavier's framing of right. like well you know essentialist whatever yes. the fuck you know you know, that this whole idea of, like, you're not valid enough for us, that we do have internal right. community policing. But, like, dear God, uh, am, am I glad that, like... He didn't. <laughs> that, that he didn't, because, like, he doesn't have the range, right? No cis that, person has the range. Um, that, to me, has always spoke to the biggest problem with comics culture in general, is, like, they're ill-equipped to deal with any of this kind of shit, because it's been so long, the system... The structures of it have been straight cis white guys writing books for straight cis white boys because it's been like just backwash of the shit. And like, you know, there the, there is a certain level where in like the 60s or whatever, it was a radical position to just be like into Spider-Man. But at this point, it's not. No, <laughs> like, no. One. At this point, like, yeah. And, you know, Tam- Tamara and I have like talked about so much about uh, Tamara, my colorist. I've talked so much about... Um, just like how annoyed we get at like just Gen X dudes 
<clears throat> were like the most liberal like guys you could possibly imagine because they like Nirvana, and you know now they can't believe that people would want to have their own point of view too, and they just get so fucking mad. And like, I think, I think that so many of these writers who just can't comprehend why, like, you can't you know use like a no effects line <laughs> in a comic. It's like, don't call me the M word. Why a black person might find that offensive. Yeah. Why, you know, cause they don't listen to no effects and they don't understand the context of that. And you didn't do a great job explaining it. And you, you're continuing to not do that. Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, like a person like Dan slot specifically, I think he's a yeah. dude that, that just, he wouldn't even go to any of those places because I, I just don't think that he seems like he has a strong political instinct any either way. Um, yeah. and it's like, sure, whatever. Um, but I, I definitely know what you mean, but like, so there's phrases that get thrown around, um, especially these days on social media, like trans trender has been going around for a bit, but it's just this idea that people might assert themselves as trans just like for clout that because it's cool, because it's sure. going to get them somewhere. Um, and that's ridiculous. And like, that's, that's a thing that's been going on for a very long time. Because, like, if you've, if you've seen, like, Velvet Goldmine, like, the movie with, like, Christian Bale, and, like, I think maybe Ewan McGregor is in it? Ewan McGregor's in it, Christian Bale's in it, and, uh, Tony Riss Collette. Davis, I think. Yeah. Was the other guy? But it, yeah, it's it, the it, Bowie, the Bowie, uh... Iggy Pop. Bowie Iggy Pop, yeah. I was gonna say Lou Reed, but he's not in that one. No, but it's that era, and it's just sort of this yeah. idea of... And, and, like, the movie's okay. It doesn't necessarily assert this, but it's just sort of this idea that there was a time when it was cool to jump on, like if you were a cisgender man, to be more feminine and to play at being mm. gay or bisexual and that it would help your career or something like this, right? That it wasn't a genuine expression of queerness, right? Um, and, and, then you, and you kind of see this coming in through like the 90s when like certain parts of the gay community were have, having like a little bit of, bit of a moment or like, oh, you're just pretending, you know, and and you, you had that you've had that era for like bisexual women for a really long time, right? And like Katy Perry certainly didn't help things with that one particular song of hers. So TATU big moment. Yeah, I mean God, like mm -hmm. that would have to be a whole other conversation because legendary moment. Because you know? like they were actually very positively formative to me, even though like the way that whole thing was pulled off was bad. But that's a, yeah. As a teenage boy, it was like I remember other guys who was like, "Oh fuck, it's happening!" <laughs> it's like it's fine. <laughs> um, so that's that's one side of it, and and that just carries that just moves around the entire acronym. Because um, if you went to the wrong place on Tumblr, people would say the same shit about like asexual people. Um, yeah. So it's always just like someone, some part of the community. It, it's respectability politics, right? You're like, oh no, you're not performing this the way that we want you to um and so we want to exclude you and the other side of of what he's getting into particularly because it involves the x gene is this like it's a conspiracy theory don't call it anything else but a conspiracy theory because it's like QAnon. it's called rapid onset gender dysphoria and it sounds scientific but it's not and it's been debunked there was this really infamous um article about it and it didn't really call it this but it's, this is what it was about in the atlantic a while ago and like this is the thing like when i was thinking about all this stuff that this page is pointing to i'm like and 
I don't want to be too insulting, but I'm like, does Dan Slott know what the Atlantic is? He doesn't really have the energy of, of like, someone who's like, oh, yeah, I read, read, I read that back when, like, ta Coates was coming up, you know? It's, he just strikes me uh, as a guy might, who cocoons with know? his video games, and that's fine. He probably absorbs some kind of a subject from Twitter. Yeah. Like, like a conversation on Twitter, and he just interpreted that, that into what you were talking about. Well, I don't think he did it on purpose. I think there are right? people whose uh, knowledge of politics extends as far as, like, a Patton Oswalt retweet. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, again, <clears throat> like, I don't, so I don't think that he understood the implications because he just doesn't have a background yeah. for it and fine. But it's like, when you're working in the sphere of the X-Men, Marvel should have an editorial frame that's like, okay, how are we handling this shit? Somebody editorially should be there to, to have like yeah. those guardrails to say like, okay, this is going, this is going out of bounds. This could go to bad places. Um, but it's this whole idea that there's supposedly like clusters of like AFAB assigned female at birth kids who just like all come out together as trans, as like non-binary or wanting to transition uh, medically uh, male wise, right? Um, and sure. that they're only doing it through, like, you know, peer pressure, social pressure. And so, like, I, I love the idea. I don't want to cut you off, no. but I love the idea that that could be contributed to, like, people being pressured and not, like, them finding places to feel accepted enough to do that culturally. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that actually for a lot of us, you know, we just, like, our understanding of these issues and are able to, like, you know, cope with the fact that people are not going to have our same experiences and like, that's fine. But there's a lot, you know, there, it has to be that people are being tricked, right? Not that there are more accepting people in the world of that shit. And no, you're, you, that's, that's exactly correct. And you know, like it, I just, I do love it to see like cis people grasp it and, and interpret it, it exactly like that, you know, cause it, it means like, that's just less work that I have to do. Um, yeah. And that's the thing because it's always like, the, the assumption is always that we've always known how many trans people are around in a given moment. And if, like, Christine Jorgensen was the only one that anybody knew about in the 70s, that, like, there were no other trans people other than Christine Jorgensen. Because, it, like, and, and, and it's just, it's, it's that iceberg. There's always the under the surface, all of the people who never came out, who never asserted themselves, blah, 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 right? And it's like, so we're seeing more above the iceberg now because the social conditions are more correct um, or, or more right. like accepting like it's, it's easier right there's more institutional yeah. backing there's more cultural visibility because like you know there's the whole the, the whole like grant morrison inter interview that came out like just the other day where you know he was basically saying like yeah i'm, I'm more or less non-binary and like anybody who's been paying attention to his work uh, very closely yeah. for the last 30 years are like yeah I mean, it's it's yeah. kind of funny. Cause it made perfect sense when I when yeah. I when I read it. Yeah, it's 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 like you can make the joke that it's like the biggest commitment to a bit ever because like <laughs> the broad thrust of like like the big thematic structure of all of his work is that you have these these two polar binary opposites that like synthesize into you know some new thing that moves forward. So you don't even necessarily have to go to like Rebus and like doom patrol to say haha this specific thing it's like no there's there's all of these things and and you know he was somebody who was exposed to like genesis pure like porridge and like all of that stuff his his x-men was was incredibly like queer and progressive yeah. compared to like yeah. the later joss whedon stuff it was much more open-minded 
much more about how being a mutant meant you could finally overcome these binaries uh, to, to become something else. But also... Yeah, one of the things I love about Morrison in general is it's always been like extremely sympathetic in ways that a lot of other like comic books, especially about superheroes, are not, you know? Mm. Well, mm-hmm. the, the human is, is such a big like thing that nobody else was grasping. So, like, it is kind of one of those external threat elements that like you kind of always see with like when they do want to talk about like gay shit or whatever mm-hmm. with the x-men because like no one was really talking about cultural misappropriation in that way um mm-hmm. when the u-men came out and the u-men is is a little bit less about appropriation of like queer community identity than it is actually about colonialism and race so Morrison yeah. was playing with a lot of things at once there. But the U-Men are... But I think Morrison is a guy who understands that stuff, and that's yes. a key difference. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who, who internalizes a lot of that stuff and I think can do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not to say he do- hasn't had slip-ups. He has, oh, you know? sure. I remember one time I, I made a mistake of saying that, you know, uh, Lord Fanny and in Invisibles was like positive trans representation just because it was representation at all. And uh, no, I was wrong. I... <laughs> I got- you know i like you know it get, look uh, i have a friend natalie i know you know i think you know natalie vaguely yeah uh she she just like really really took me to task on it and i you know like there's a way that you could go about how you respond to that even mm-hmm. that i think a lot of creators should just understand or just take the l be like oh you know what you're a trans person you understand this better than i'm going to so if that's how you feel that's how you feel and like i'm gonna try to understand that perspective yeah i mean and like lord fanny in particular like that's that like that that's always going to be a supercharged thing because like on the one hand and i always forget this until i actually go back and read the pages there are like you know like slurs and derogatory terms that are just like oh yeah the name of the arc um and it, yeah. and it's like i've read the interviews about like phil Jimenez trying to explain the ways that he was drawing like Fanny to look trans and the language is fucking crazy. But he was talking in 1996. We did not yeah. have the framework for that stuff now. Right. And like yeah, Phil Jimenez is like a fucking like legend and queer elder in comics. And like you, uh, Phil Jimenez is about to come on the show. Oh my God. Yeah. Send. Yeah. We've already talked to him about it. He's coming on like, I think in a, I I I want to be ready as like interviewers, honestly, because yeah. like before, <laughs> yeah, like, I, need I like time. that I can work I this out. For that. I like working this out with friends, and then but I told him like, listen, Phil, as soon as we're ready, I want to have you on the show because I fully agree that he's like a legend, as you know, uh, like you said, as like a queer creator and as a Latino creator, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is like you know he's a guy who was doing all the biggest shit that I read, you know, or like my favorite stuff like New X Men, Invisibles, you know. All that shit. So, my sister. We had, love Phil Jimenez, but sorry, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to. No, to... no, it's it, it's all good. Like my my sister had like a cutout from the newspaper. There was this big like article that was like gay artist draws Wonder Woman, and like I wasn't reading superhero comics back then, but she just saw this cool Wonder Woman drawing, so she like cut it out and like just taped it to her mirror. She didn't give a shit about superhero comics. She just saw this like you know because she had the muscles and stuff. Like Jimenez's Wonder Woman is just like instantly, instantly 
recognizable and so she had this for years and when i started seeing his art and like new x-men and stuff when i came when i like got into that shit i was like wait is this like the dude that drew the thing on my sister's mirror when she was a kid <laughs> and it's and it's yeah. wild yeah and, and and i think there is a really a point to be made about specific like a, a history of like latinx um like artists and, and and writers shaping wonder woman and what she looks like and, and how we see her right right because she's she's mexican yeah and and and, and I, <laughs> no but like i really think you know like because one time you said that and i actually stopped and thought about it and i was like all of the iconic wonder woman artists that i could point to going back so many years were i mean there's there's other you know non yeah, who, but I mean, Linda Carter is Mexican as well. There's like yeah, a whole thing. Yeah, I always fucking forget but. that. But yeah, so it, it is super important, like, um, to look at those things and see those genealogies. Um, but like at the same time, with like Lord Fanny, um, and I understand like there is a lot of deep stuff that people don't like in there, and like I share a lot of those concerns. But it's sure. like you can, you also need to be able to like embrace and love things that could be problematic. Like I just listened to yeah, I... an interview about the Al Pacino movie Cruising, but oh, like... I, I watched that with Tamara recently. <laughs> I, you know what? I love that movie for what it is, yeah, and it's problematic, yeah, <laughs> but it's sick. I mean, like it's a problematic movie that is sick. But after we watched it, I watched a bunch of like people protesting in San Francisco at the yeah. time. And it's just like, you know, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting movie. But go, what were you going to say? Um, you know, but like at the same time, I like the comic that I'm, I'm writing and drawing right now is directly based on Fanny's initiation arc in mm. The Invisibles. And it is called like She-Mail or something as like a, a pun on Shaman. And I'm I'm there like replicating the panels like some of the panels mm. directly that like Jill Thompson did. And I've like my character who's me in the comic is wearing this Machino hat that's supposed to say Machino in gold letters, but I'm switching it to the different invisibles artists as, the, as the whole thing goes on. But it's just like, it impacted me a lot, especially because like dealing with magic and things in comics, it's, it's always so trans exclusionary and so like, <sighs> gender um you know like reinforcing the gender binary especially when you get something as as fucked as the sandman right or you have sure. this like turf goddess basically and people make their excuses but it's like this girl only found acceptance in death so i've always loved the like because fanny decided her gender right like she like they gave her the two things it's this like fucking lone wolf and cub moment um right like take the ball take the sword you know, because there's the fight between the grandma and, and like, the the father or whatever. And, like, she sees the dress. And it's, like, I didn't really understand how to frame it at the time because I first read The Invisibles in, like, 2005. Um, but going back, it was the first expression of gender euphoria and affirmation mm. that I have ever seen. So, yeah, like, roses can actually rise out of mud, right? And so, like... Obviously, like, I'm sure whatever Natalie's critiques are, like, completely valid. And, like, yeah, there's, like, yeah. bad shit in there. No question. But it's, like, also, I'm going to take it and, like, live for myself through it because I just fucking love it. Um, and it, But it, it's just kind of, like, and, and that's the whole thing with the slot deal is that, you know, you have these things. They don't know what they're playing with. They just do dumb 
shit and they don't realize the ramifications but we have to be bathed in all of these ramifications and, and consequences because we have this shit bombarding us uh, as trans people on twitter all the fucking time and it's just like we're not in a space where we need to see exclusion and that's like because here's the thing like i'm not the defending slot but again like i said like there's a version of this that like somebody else could have written where Xavier is an exclusionary, uh, you know, figure where, like, um, Buck Angel, who's like, if you don't perform your identity the way I want you to, you're not valid as being trans, right? Yeah. But, so the thing is, is that, like, I think it's consistent with how Jonathan Hickman is writing Xavier. I think Slot did right by Hickman. And so that's just my fundamental argument against the Krakoa era. I don't like the Krakoa era. Because it's... It's like, you know what? I've read Dune and I've read Joe Casey's Wildcats run. So, like, because <laughs> like, comics, like, so much of, like, what, and, or maybe not so much Joe Casey's Wildcats, but, like, just the authority, right? Because yeah. the, the thing is, so much of, like, comics, they expect, like, a 10-year washout rate. That you're going to read Superhero for comics for, like, 10 years and then fuck off. Because I still remember when Fabian Nicieza... Um, did this in Cable and Deadpool and like Cable had his own little breakaway society and like they sent yeah. the Silver Surfer in to fuck him up and 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 break the <laughs> yeah, whole I, thing. I, I think I got a tweet off where I was just like yeah it's funny how every like I don't know four or five years like an X-Men writer comes in and is like what if they were like just Nazis who had their own place to live and then it's <laughs> like oh and then the story is always that the Nazis are bad this is revolutionary <laughs> Yeah, like it's, it's yeah, they've crazy. been doing the the X Men on their own island thing every every sort of six seven years. It's it's how Morrison's opens up like they have their own thing and then they get like sliced apart and Emma mm-hmm. Frost is in the school with the all those like kids. Remember? Mm-hmm. Like that's... and then afterwards, there's the AVX thing, which is Cyclops doing that again. <laughs> yeah, it's but insane. I love AVX, <laughs> and <laughs> now funny. it's Krakoa. <laughs> Um, I, for a little while, the X-Men just, like, remember when they just moved to San Francisco and all the X-Men went to that island outside of San Francisco? It's just, like, utopia. they do it constantly. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, and I think that's okay, because, like, Wonder Woman has had an island for a long time, and Black Panther has had a country for a long time. So I think, like, it's fine to play with different configurations of breakaway societies, but my point is just kind of, like, how supremacist and exclusionary this vision of it is because it's like yeah and it's so stupid to me because it's just like i've also read the pearl by john steinbeck right because the whole thing is like big shout out because like the x-men have, my guy have found this thing that like gets them a fuckload of money and buys them all of this political power that allows mm-hmm. them to get into this position and there's all of like hickman spends like two issues coming up with excuses for why the market can't crash them and grab this thing from them right like there's all these excuses about why and you're just like so why are you doing this this really really precious thing when you've spent so much time pointing out how this thought experiment could never work and this particular breakaway could never work so that bugged the hell out of me um and you kind of know how this is going to end because like it's going to end like the cable deadpool thing but to me it's just so exclusionary and mean-spirited and like the whole jerusalem thing is like that's like that is um bill willingham bad (laughs) like that's i'm just like i don't like we don't need that like you know it it, no you need to engage better and it's just and so i was kind of like feeling that that hickman was sort of like two-dimensional 
And then he fell on his face trying to say the Black Lives Matter on Twitter, and I was like, oh, word, okay. It, what happened with that? I don't... I, he, I don't remember, but it's just like, Hickman really, he always wants to be like lofty and unreadable in everything that he does. Like, even when he was in the Love is Love anthology, he just, he published a chart. Like, it's a chart. It, it had a message, <laughs> but it's a chart. And I, was, and I was kind of like, haha, that's kind of funny. But, like, as so many of the people who got pages in there that probably shouldn't have have, like, shown their asses, I just feel more critical of people who didn't stand up and say something real. So I kind of feel like sometimes Hickman, like, he can write very thrilling stories, but he presents himself in a way that there's, like, an appearance of substance that isn't really there. So he, like... Mm. I think he tried to just be too precious about how he wanted to phrase it. And people were like, dude, this isn't it. You should have just like said hashtag BLM and like gone along your way. But he just couldn't do it. So he, he doesn't have a lot of like robust thinking about this. But like this whole page, it made me think about two like and these may have been simultaneous or like within a year of each other. But like if you go back to when Jason Aaron was writing Wolverine and the X-Men and he had like, uh, like I think he had Chris Bacalo for a little bit. He had like Art Adams for a little bit. Um, but the whole Jean Grey Academy, like they had a fucking brood kid in the school, right? Like they had um, Kid Apocalypse in there. It's like we're the X Men, we're a mutant haven, but like we recognize and shelter people who are in like fucked up situations. And it's like we're not going to set this hard boundary that you have. You need it's not blood and soil. You don't need this one genetic marker. Sure to rock with us right like we have friends and networks and like a lot of wolverine stories is he would hook up with the shiar he would because like that's the thing like wolverine has friends everywhere he's a dude that networks right and he's a dude right. that forms bonds um and like when he goes to quentin choir to like the space casino you kind of see stuff like that right and it's kind of an underrated side of wolverine um, but then on the flip side, at around the same time... Wolverine is a socialist. He believes in collectivity. Everybody knows that. Yeah, he's like an old school, like, weird one. But yeah, yeah. Because he's Canadian. Big shout out. He's Mexican, too. Yeah. Oh, he's Mexican. Never mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, no man that short, that hairy, that full of rage <laughs> is not Mexican. So good with knives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but at the same time that Jason Aaron was doing that, um, or not, maybe not exactly at the same time, but within that time frame, Matt Fraction was writing a comic called FF. Now, like somebody else, and I think it might have been Mark Wade, had the actual Fantastic Four on some weird intergalactic journey. So they were like not in New York. They weren't at Four Freedoms Plaza or whatever, right? So like they had a ringer team come in that Matt Fraction was writing, and it was um, Ant Man, the like right. Scott one, the guy who had like the Ant Girl daughter who fucking died or whatever um she hulk this like pop star girl named miss thing and uh, medusa and they were like the, the backup squad right and they're supposed to be taking care of things um and so a lot of it was just about like like because the fantastic four and that's why it's really important to talk about why they're doing fucked up shit with fantastic four is the literal nuclear family of the marvel universe this is the mom the dad and the kids this is the central yeah. value structure of what a family looks like. Because you can go out and find the X-Men for, like, the queer family configuration. You can go out and find other families, you know, like capital F families in Marvel Comics that have their own weird dynamics. But, like, the Fantastic Four are the paragons, right? They're the platonic ideal of capital F family. 
I think I think it's the Avengers that are like uh, the polyamorous orgy family. <laughs> I guess uh, they're actually the CIA. Yeah, oh, I mean. okay. <laughs> Anyways, were you? Um, so so they are like the platonic ideal family. So even though this was the Ringer Squad, it was a place to to kind of like redefine what family can mean in this context of the superhero world. And they had these like mole children, like the you know like mole man that kind of shit. That were like that were with them in Four Freedoms Plaza, and one of them like comes out as trans, um, and of course like the whole thing that made this a much easier story to tell um, is like the Moloid children don't have like secondary sex characteristics that are like differentiatable to like people because they're a fictional species or whatever, so it's just like this kid puts on a dress and she's a girl now, right? They don't have to play with any of, like, the landmines of, like, asking Mike Allred to draw, like, a 10-year-old trans girl. I mean, maybe he could do it. I don't know. But that's that's a fucking minefield. That's tough. So it's, like, cool. It's fine with me that this is an inhuman character. But it was making a point. And Scott's trying to become a father and learn how to be trans-affirmative. And She-Hulk is there dealing with it, right? And it's just this huge groundbreaking moment of just, like, inclusivity and affirmation. And that was literally what it was. It wasn't, like, a weird side thing that plays into like creepy shit accidentally right but it's just you look at this kind of shit and you're just like it's such a fucking yo-yo it's such a fucking lucy in the football because like i know there's moloid children hanging around four freedoms now but i don't think tong is there i don't think hickman really used that character and you'll look at any time that someone tries to introduce hickman to do some interesting stuff i think well because i read some of that stuff because my boy nick dragata you know shout out nick dragata army uh, he he drew it, so I'll read whatever Nick draws. I'll even read Max Landis stuff if Nick draws it. Unfortunately, oh, but uh, cancel just just one issue of it, just for yeah. Nick Dragata. That's Nick Dragata Army. I, I'm telling you, but um, you know, it, it's interesting stuff with that. But it never touched on that. I think it mm. touched more about like the idea of family or whatever. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely I think not on that wavelength. And you know, I, like. Going back a bit, I don't think it, I don't think it has to be, but when you court those ideas, you cannot expect to be surprised when people criticize it. Like you know what I mean? Like you said, you have to just learn to engage better. If you write something that is provocative in those ways, like how can how can you as an adult be surprised when people have a problem with it? Yeah, if it's not you know, but I... that and that's my biggest that's my biggest takeaway from the, all mm. of that is just like. Man, just learn how to take an L and like shut the fuck up. I think I think that's important, but I always want to pull back a little bit um, away from individuals because I mean, like I said, you know, like like yeah. Slot's behavior needs to be reined in, and we just can we just cannot afford to have trans critics being like critic like being harassed across platforms on a regular basis because like it is so hard for any of us to make a home in this industry um, yeah. that like we just need to defend ourselves and defend each other. Um, and like, like, who are the true X Men? There you go, right? But, um, but at the same time, like to me, like this is just a huge abdication of responsibility on Marvel's part. And it's like, right. there have been numerous incidents that have really taught us where Marvel stands on LBGT stuff right now. So I'm not surprised that this happened. Um, but it's just kind of like this yo-yo where they still do want this clout. They still do enable people to use the mutant metaphor for explicitly queer shit. But they yeah. won't take the responsibility of having an editorial framework 
that will look at this shit because it's like it's it's chill to me that like Dan Slott probably doesn't know much or anything about these issues, but like there should yeah. be someone else to catch him because like I'll give you an example. I can't disclose exactly what it was because like this was an under the table gig, but one of the consulting things that I had was a comic was a licensed comic from a children's cartoon property of which they're like 50 but i was brought on board just to look over instances of like villains who had a history of being like queer coded or like <laughs> gender non-conforming of which there's like 200 like every kid's cartoon yeah. out there you're like okay there's that effeminate villain or whatever but like my job was just to sit there and wait in the wings like the the creative team had no contact with me. I was just there dealing yeah. with the editors in, the, in these situations. And I'll look over them and make sure they just don't fall down a well that they don't know how to get themselves out of, right? Um, yeah, but those are those are just good practices Yeah, at this yeah. point. They are. And, and, like, everybody knows about them. And that's why I've been at least a little bit public. Like, I don't necessarily tell those specific stories because I want to protect, you know, the people who have enabled my career and enabled me to do things yeah. like that. and not burn people yeah but especially uh, at the caliber and the image that marvel has courted as mm -hmm. well like uh marvel is obviously uh at a point financially where they could definitely afford uh to have that kind of uh just um uh, oversight or or yeah. whatever the word might be like just um yeah i mean all you need is and, is for your editors to read a book but like at the same yes. time yeah the... I, I think i think the thing is that they give so much of that responsibility to the writers so yes. there are good writers that write those things like you know uh vita italia i've, I've butchered her ayala 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 vita ayala just, shout out uh, Leia, Leia Williams, like there are good writers there that are, that are much more like sort of like clear visioned about that kind of stuff. Well, cause they mm -hmm. are queer. So you they? might, you're going to get a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you're going to get good stuff from them about this on that subject, but then you're also going to have people who are like just dudes that have no idea. And the way Marvel works, it is so like, you know, sort of like weird libertarian sort of like hierarchy structure where it's just like every book has to be self-sustaining financially it's like it's so bizarre like it's a it's a bizarre mm -hmm. structure because of who's at the top of that chain right but yeah and um speaking speaking of which sorry i don't want to cut you yeah, off no but i i do want to make a point related to where you're headed ahead. before you do because sure. here's here's the thing is that like why i don't want to push too hard or spend too much time on something like the dan slot thing is you kind of have to ask yourself where can this go right because yeah. like we can say like because here's the thing like to the point of what daniel was saying marvel can afford this um obviously like disney is a shareholder driven business and they don't want to see like a fucking penny spent on those bitches making comics more than yeah. they can it, it, it's like shout out to abigail disney like burn it down but like um at the same time like you know that that structure exists but like let's let's just kind of like look at where marvel is at now because the problem is like you can hire the types of people that you talked about there and they typically get smaller projects and stuff like that but yeah. you also need like a culture and a backing of editors who like can work with them and allow them to bring their best work out because like i was talking in a recent piece about like if you read 
Brothers Keeper, like the Judd Winnick Green Lantern comic, because I actually finally read the actual oh, story. I do too. I, I, if you read sorry, that go ahead. and compare it to Pedro and me, you're like, what the fuck is going on in Brothers Keeper? <laughs> Brothers Keeper, like, I understand that they like it pioneered this type of story. So, like, sorry, I shouldn't use pioneered, especially not on Thanksgiving, but How like, dare it, like you. innovated that style of like storytelling. But it's this is like. It's just fucking, like, toxic masculinity to, like, 12. And, like, that's not how Pedro and me plays out. And so it's, like, you know that Judd Winnick has, like, other gears. But, like, that's, yeah. th- that's like, how he was trying to reach those people. And that's, like, what DC was set Well, it reached me. Do, right? <laughs> like, like, yeah. I guess, like, shout out to Helping I read it. Yeah. I was, um, yeah. But I wrote that is the toxic masculinity demographic. <laughs> You think I would deny that? <laughs> I mean, but like, you know what I mean, though. Like, it's just, but yeah, and then like, you know, the the brutal one is stuff like Cena and Grace. It's like even if you don't know what he said about what happened behind the scenes and the lack yeah. of support that he had from the company, if you read an issue, and like a lot of people commented on this, they read an issue or two of Iceman, and they're like, "What is this?" And then you read his other stuff, and it's like you can see the gap. Any like mm-hmm. LBGT creator. Um, who goes through these these big two companies, like, and and also does independent work of their own? There is a clear fucking gap in like the quality yeah. and the richness of what they're able to pull off within these structures because they don't have the editorial backing. And it's like, I've been part of like industry conversations where like you know, cartoonists and other professionals in the industry gather to talk about some of this shit. And it's kind of like we're all like, you know, a lot of the creatives like myself and, and, you know, the writers and other artists and stuff like that are just like, we really want editors that can like back us, that know who we are, have our experiences or like have the experiences that we don't. And it's like, if you have a book at Image, you can hire whatever freelance editor you want. You can't do that at Dark Horse. You can't do that at um you know like marvel dc credit there are like it's same as the it's the same as the writing staffs there yeah i've never i don't think i've ever worked with an editor who i didn't like and who i felt like didn't have my back on some level you know what i mean yeah like i'm talking about from now since i started like i've only i've been very very like i think blessed in this business to only work with like pretty good people Mm -hmm. you know um yeah but it's it, so like it can be a bit but, more nuanced you know right? it, but yeah their bosses you don't know yeah <laughs> you yeah know? i, I like, think it, but, i think what what it and is, and also sorry also i'm an artist so yeah, <laughs> yeah no like, de- there's definitely a privilege there but not to go the, the other half that. of the other half of what i was saying about uh i guess marvel's um uh, scope or, or their size and and uh, their sort of responsibility to do this is that they have courted an image of of being uh the the how how would you say it the hip the <laughs> hip yeah the modern queer friendly right. like they they purport to be um progressive in many of these in many of these subjects but uh, when it comes to the actual execution, you will you will see uh, the examples that you're talking about, Emma. Yeah, but I mean, like, and if it's if we say that we have an agenda here, that we want to get more editors of color, more queer editors, more trans editors, you know, in there, 
it's like, well, if you're an independent creator or you're kickstarting or whatever, then that means be mindful of who you're hiring as a freelancer. But the question is, what do we do to make that happen at, at, at DC and Marvel like or, or Dark Horse or something, right? Because like, yeah. it's sort of like you can work with interpersonally cool people, but if you're trying to tell complex stories about your own background, and I don't know, maybe, like I do know that there are editors who exist who can do that. Um, but it's like, if we're trying to broaden that, like how the fuck can you find leverage the like the leverage to make that happen against Disney and AT&T like that's who we're dealing right. with now right like it's that's, I don't even want to get into who the, the editor-in-chief is yeah. at this exact moment but obviously like there's an unfortunate parallel between like the the Franklin Richards story right now and the current editor-in-chief of Marvel so it's like what is he gonna say about any of this nothing right but yeah. even even if you have like a chill EIC, um, it's kind of Which, like you know, shout out Mary Javins, extremely cool person. Yeah, but it's 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 so tough to be like where do you, where do you find the leverage points with these particular institutions? So to me, it's kind of like go to the places where you know, spend your effort where you know you can have an impact, where you know you can find the pressure points. So I just kind of like it's chill for me to like bounce in and out of these conversations because like superhero conversations are big and loud. They touch the whole industry. So it's good to get your voice in there and to get your points in there. But it's like, to me, like I'm not going to let this shit burn me out because like yeah. I'm too valuable. All of my trans siblings in this industry are too valuable for even a single one of us to get burned out on like corporate superhero shit. But it's like, I will definitely always pop in when it's something that has these dimensions because I want to be there to, to like take a little bit of the load off and like show solidarity, right? Yeah, and it, it's also because there are probably uh, trans and queer people who are getting into superhero comics now, like the young people who are getting into superhero comics now. Um, they need somebody to let them know that this is not okay or, or yeah. that uh, this is a misstep and that there is a better way. And I feel like your voice is important in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, yeah, like to, just, just to give them a sense of like you're, you're valid and as a counterfactual, but like my preferred method would be like, give me that fantastic four comic and let me instead give you a copy of stagecoach <laughs> dreams by Melanie Gilman um, or something like that. If they're like younger, um, would would be kind of or like just let you write it yeah well i mean i you know i honestly like marvel i don't want anything to do with marvel i don't want to work with marvel at any stage um because i don't know i feel like i would be extremely vulnerable to a situation like what senior grace went into and mm -hmm. and i just exposing myself to that you know it's just like here's the thing here's the thing uh, like are there marvel characters that i would kill at yes but i kind of like don't see the risk reward to it of like trying to push stuff through and it's like if i did mm -hmm. write stuff for them i wouldn't be pushing like the same kind of agenda as i do in my comics so it's like to me it's like i would rather just like if if i want to draw gene gray sucking a frost cock i can do that myself like i don't need marvel to do that i don't need right. the affirmation of it but, like, at the same time, I was reading the annual, like, one of the annuals that Bendis did for, like, um, all new X-Men. And they had, like, the dude who does those, like, web comics of, like, Scott and Gene in their, like, 90s cartoon. 
stuff mm-hmm. and like just people who are like completely oddball off the beaten path to like just drop in and do like a guest thing and if someone like sent me an email like hey can you do a page for this like x-men thing we're doing i'd be like that's sick right and it's like the whole thing with like jay Deaton like writing that cyclops one shot was like really fucking dope because this is a dude yeah who like like he i mean number one like has had to stand like almost alone in terms of like visible trans men in this industry for too long because like they're around like there are trans dudes around but there has been like huge failures of like feminist organizing to like properly acknowledge and uplift trans men and non-binary people in this industry for a long time and some people are working to correct that so a lot of people were invisibilized that shouldn't have been um on that end but also like he's a dude who like basically mapped that like stole that character from marvel right there are like whole swaths of people that like like to him cyclops like like cyclops and him are like interchangeable in that sense because he just has this intimate connection to the character and can articulate so much about the character that like a lot of people just don't want to do because a lot of people just don't like cyclops but so for him that's a great comic uh, that that he did with uh, tom riley by the way yeah um and it was also because like but that particular comic was also showing like a, a pre-mutant, uh, like pre-like X-gene activation um, Cyclops seeing the advent of superheroes in the Marvel world. And like that is such an astounding accessing of the mutant metaphor of like being a kid before you're out before you've had your epiphany about your orientation or your gender identity or whatever and seeing this thing and then becoming something different as you hit puberty so it's like there is so much that marvel can do with queer and trans narratives because like puberty is a central fucking piece of the marvel universe because that's when your X gene activates. That's the whole like Peter Parker and his webs and like blah blah blah. It's it's funny, you know. It's a semen joke, but like it's legit. Um, yeah. You know, Kamala Khan really brought that back into focus with like really like in a really fucking cool way. So shout out to like G Willow Wilson and Steve Wacker and the other people who all worked on that, right? To be like, oh yeah, you have weird growth spurts when you hit puberty, and they turn that into the super dope character. So it's like there are all of these things that you can be doing. Um, that can revolve around that and access that thing in cool ways but like trans representation doesn't like ever get that lyrical quality in in marvel comics or dc comics or whatever because like number one it's never trans creators who are creating these characters and bringing the way that we see our own transness into these comics and then it's also just like so didactically like educational when most of these characters pop up that they're like here to tell you that it's chill to be trans and like to educate cis people about being trans. So you lose the magic of what a superhero was supposed to be and like lose the magic of allegory when that happens. So I just like it's it's just so fucking like I I think part part of it is is the fact that we are we're talking about uh characters young teen characters like franklin richards for example and them being written by the furthest thing from young teens going through these uh sensations going through these experiences like the the more the younger you get a writer the more 
possible it is you might get some kind of accurate representation of of uh emotions that uh people might be going through in in the modern day but if you have like dan slot writing uh franklin richards uh emotions what 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 do you what can you expect i mean what can you expect i guess so but dan slot is probably in like the same age bracket as the guy who does euphoria so like I don't think that's true. <laughs> I don't, I, so um, you you, but it's all in how you harness those volcanic emotions, right? But like, yeah. there aren't really no volcanic emotions in Dan Slot's Fantastic Four. It's so sterile. I mean, I don't know, like Valeria's pitching fit on her bed. Boys suck, but like you don't, you don't like. There's no respect for that sense that that everything is an, is an is an apocalypse. It's a character. Everything is a yeah. mood, right? Like the he, there's no lyricism to it. Yeah. I uh, we have to move on. <laughs> That's a page that we've talked about for an hour. <laughs> um, I mean, we talked about other stuff, but I just want to yeah. like you know. No, we. Should. I want to be able to. We could talk about you and other things yeah, too. But we have that. to finish Ramon, Dan Slot. Ramon, uh, we. I. I could all like. I. I'm suggesting that we can also have like a, a Dance Lot deep dive extended <laughs> edition for the. Hold for the for the Patreon, Patreon or, or something uh, like that. We, we have to finish talking about this right now. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we, if you want us to keep talking about this specific page, yes. But there was another Dan Slot thing that happened right after that. That was that's incredible. what I'm talking about. And it was the Disney Plus app. They put out. They've been putting out a show called Marvel Six One Six, and it's been hitting on different elements of like the Marvel sort of like real world fan base and i guess i, I don't know yeah, what they the did one on the cosplay is. they went on cosplay did one but they did one on dan slot which is just such a total like <laughs> it's a it's a total weird thing to do because it was technically about the marvel method right it's technically like... about the marvel method but it's what they showed in that was not the marvel method like the marvel method as it was cre- you know created back in the day was writer calls up artist gives them the plot maybe we'll type it out artist draws like 22 pages or whatever the fuck it is and then writer scripts it but there's you know in that thing he's going like page one panel one and that's completely wrong (laughs) for what the marvel method is that's immediately not marvel method yeah like uh hickman works marvel method on some of his other projects but x-men is full script which is again ironic (laughs) right like uh east of west i'm you know, for a lot of that, it was, they have a phone call, Nick writes it, yeah, Nick draws it, and, you know, puts writing of, like, the the pacing and all that stuff in it, and then Hickman would write the words over it, and that's, like, that's actual Marvel method. So it's bizarre that they did this one on Dan Slott writing the Marvel method, and then, like, I, I don't know who it was for, frankly, like, <laughs> I don't know who watches that and is like, oh, okay, this is how they make comic books, like, that's in, it's insane, and it's also led to a second round of like people turn like Pete Woods was a writer on it. I mean, uh, he was a, he was the artist working on a comic in this presentation in this show, and Dan Slot, who I didn't know because I've not read a lot of Dan Slot comics, he's really late, so Dan is running late, and Pete Woods has to like carry the load basically on the back end. And people have been tweeting about that, and Pete Loda, Pete Woods has been getting upset, going on Twitter and telling people, like, you don't understand, 
They, this is they, they put the artist. Wait, you're telling me that they put the artist of the book on damage control? Like, <laughs> like as an artist, I, he doesn't have enough work to do. You're gonna also make him defend his his late ass writer. But like, so the thing is, I don't know how late Dan was at that point, right? Like, I think they filmed it. Like, oh, here's like a here's some ideas of wouldn't this make be exciting? They have to get the script done on time. Like, uh, I didn't watch the Todd documentary about him getting out the issue, the issue, like, 300 or whatever of Spawn. But I think it's, like, the same concept, right? It's, like, uh, it's, like, um, we have to get this done so the printers can get it so that we can put this thing out and so that people can get this new Spawn issue. I think that was the idea. Uh, like, what if Dan Slott has to race against time to get this book done? And, you know... Like, but they're, they're mythologizing the idea of, like, being late, which, Daniel, you know me, I'm, I'm a late guy. <laughs> I'm, I was late so many times, and my experience with that, it was, like, it was, like, surreal to watch this play out on TV, because I've been late on writing, I mean, uh, uh, drawing pages, and I just feel, like, sick. I'm, like, up all night, I'm, like, pulling my hair out, trying my fucking best to get this stuff in on time so that my editor doesn't hear it so that you know their editors aren't yelling at them i could hear that in their voice when i get a phone call from like new york or burbank i'm like oh god here we go like i need to drink a fucking seltzer so i don't throw up right now it is and... it is an absolute trauma to like wait on the inbox because you know that email is <laughs> coming where they're asking i'm like avoiding my email i'm like you know important things are just slipping through my fingers because i'm like I can't even open Gmail. Gmail is triggering. The, I took the icon off of my <laughs> off of my desktop, so I don't see it. Like it, it. So then, like when you see it on this television thing, and it's like just dance slot, like merrily walking down the street. Does I'm it have like, like that is... whimsical orchestra soundtrack type thing? Dude, yeah, and like dance slots, like looking at Spider Man swinging by him over top, and it's like it's it's it was like I said surreal triggering <laughs> to see like the editor be like oh dan like you're so late we love it and i'm like no they hate it <laughs> like there is no there it's like it's i guess like you kind of like make the joke so that you know you can just like deal with it but like being late in comics especially in like corporate comics is the worst fucking feeling on earth and i've had it so many times <laughs> and it's like tr you know so that's the one thing that really got me is like this company is putting so much resources into telling the story of this guy who is late for no, like, I don't know for whose benefit. Like, some of the pushback, some of the pushback I've seen online from people like defending uh, Slot's behavior or, or defending the, the take from the Marvel 616 is that this is a fictionalization. <laughs> no, it's yeah. That this is a, a whimsical thing that like a, an episode is fictional that they're creating this image. It looks, it's filmed like an episode of the Hills. It's not filmed like a real documentary. It, but like then, but then what is the image that they're trying to portray? Like, what are they trying the to say with that? <laughs> that's, that's the thing. It's like, if you did that for me and I'm like fucking walking around Stockton, Oh, this is great. This is amazing. I'm late as fuck. Like, if I'm if I'm an editor, you're like, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? You know what I mean? Like, it's you know, it's it just looks yeah, like yeah, you get fired the next day. Job. 
it looks like somebody who's bad at their job and like why would a corporation put that out especially about a guy who's a fucking freelancer <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what i mean mm-hmm. this makes it makes it to where like a comic creator's job is so trivialized and like it's the magic of it it's like no it's not magic it's hard work we're working hard as shit trying to make comic books especially like okay i say we i don't make monthly comics i don't make corporate comics anymore i'm working for a bad idea we we do things different but you know it's uh it's it's just like a bizarre thing to see and again just people do not know how to engage like emma said earlier like people are like getting really emotionally defensive over this and it's like you don't have to like and if we're talking about people are not criticizing dan slot the person they're criticizing in this case dan slot the fictional character that we saw on the TV show. <laughs> yeah, right. and if we're talking about this fictionalization, if we're talking about, like, this fictional dance lot, um, it's not like House, MD, <laughs> where you get an absolute buffoon or, or, like, a mean, terrible person, but when it comes to crunch time, he's an absolute savant of medicine where he figures it out, and that's the only the... reason a person gets to live. No, that we're talking about, like, he's... He's uh, late because he can't figure out which punchline he's going to use on a, on a panel. Well, and because Twitter's you know distracting him. In and thing. Twitter, and Twitter it is crazy that it's crazy that the show delves into the fact that this man is on Twitter too much. Well, um, yeah, and like th- this has been a thing for him going back a really long time, because like around the time that like Squirrel Girl popped off. Um, he gave this interview where he was talking about the fact that like his editors just like took his PlayStation away because he just, you know, so it's, it's always <laughs> been something, you know, like it's, yeah. th- this is a real, like this, this is just him. He's just chronically late. But I mean, what, yeah, like I said, I've, I am not going to criticize him for being late. I, I mean, <laughs> not me. Shout out to that editor. Well, or literally unplugging his PlayStation like a dad. Yeah. I've, I've had editors tell me, Ramon, if I see you tweet, I'm mad. I'm like, all right, bro, I'm not going to tweet. <laughs> like, you got, I will not use Twitter until these pages are turned in. But, like, sometimes yeah. you just have, like, sometimes editors have to be firm about that if they if they want to meet the deadline. And, like, if they think that's disruptive, then that's disruptive. And, like, like I said, I, I'd be throwing a fucking stone in a glass house to be, like, it's abusive to do the people beneath you, blah, 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 like a book next in line, not beneath you. But like, it is, it is a problem that people have in comics if they're late. And like the difference is like, I have, I have done like, I'm never going to get a pay raise doing that. Right. It, for him, it seems to be the opposite. Like what's a bigger project we could give you. He's going to get the show? Avengers after this. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's it's just, like, the outrage is, like, the privilege of it and, like, who gets to be late and who doesn't. And, I mean, yeah. like, on the funny end of things, like, way back in, like, 2006, I talked to Derek Robertson, and he was saying, I can't remember how we got onto this, but he was, like, every time a new editor came on to Transmetropolitan, they would, like, talk to him first, be like, all right, we're going to get this comic, like, back on schedule. And he's like, I'm not the hang-up here. Like, because sometimes he was drawing <laughs> an, an issue and, or like a like an issue in like i don't know three or four days or something i don't know it was bonkers but like everybody would come on and assume that he was like the slow one and he was talking about like how fast he had to do some of those pages and i was like well, what about rodney ramos like what happens when you finish those and he's like oh dude i don't even he's like yeah he's like yeah that's it's even worse at that point because it scales down but on on the more serious point 
um, you know, I, I was talking to Emmett Helen, um, who's a super cool trans dude cartoonist. He just had a, a graphic novel out with um, Rick Spears over at Oni. It's called My Riot. Cool. Um, and like he was talking about just kind of like the professionalization of comics and you know he worked on my riot for like at least a couple years it was a long time and so it was kind of we were kind of like talking about like what it was like being on that project for that long and why it was that way and you know he was saying that he got like so many extensions and resources and stuff forwarded to him from his his um editors and from the publication because this was like a low priority work that was like when it's done it's done you know he was saying that yeah. there wasn't a lot he he was like dead honest like there's not a lot of money tied up in this book so they would give me extra time but he also was lucky enough to have a super compassionate editorial team who were there to look out for him to like send him shit that he needed or whatever and it's just like you know he was like just coming out and stuff like that and going through like a lot of stuff and like trying to juggle drawing this graphic novel with a kitchen job and it's like i'm you know i'm back in a full-time kitchen job i'm not drawing my comics every day like my stuff is suffering so it's like you know like i i was able to pull together you know transcription volume one and draw like basically you know one or two strips every single fucking day for two months because there was like a benefit put out by the Canadian government for people who lost their jobs due to the pandemic. So I was like at home getting a government benefit um, for like six months. And like I spent the end of that drawing all of these comics and being able to come into my own creatively. But I can't just fucking do that. Right. Even from like yeah. a self pub perspective. So like you see someone who climbs in the ranks to be like very solid and comfortable at a company like Marvel. And they're allowed to just be late, just be chronically late. And like, yeah, it does get pushed down on, like, people like Pete Woods and stuff, and then you, you have shorter times to deal with this. And, like, I have heard from, like, colorists and letterers that it's, like, yeah, even once the artists, or, like, like late artists obviously push things down, too, but, like, if the writer starts off pushing things back this far, this far, this far, then it, then it comes down, excuse me, to, like, the artist to make up that gap, and then after the artist has made up that gap... Then it comes down to the colorist to make up that gap. And then it comes down to the letterer, right? And and it just kind of puts yeah. all of that extra well, pressure when you're... Yeah, there is a situation whenever you are going to get a book where the editor will be like, oh, there's going to be tons of lead time. And then the writer is like, you know, the, them and the writer are working out this like great six-issue arc that maybe is good. Like Then they'll go the next six after that. And they're like, they're working this out. And then... The book gets canceled in six issues, anyways, and you don't have any lead time, and now you're running, you're running against the clock every. The lead time is issue. used by the by the writer and editor, and then the artist gets the book at the end of the lead time. Yeah, and then that that trickles down. But you know, I, I've also burned some lead times myself. So again, I'd be hypocritical to like blame the. Yeah, it's not like it's not like we're talking stuff... about not being late. It's not we're. It's the the difference of how lateness is taken when you right. are us versus or, yeah. Well, remember, yeah. Like, do you remember reading comics in two thousand and seven, and it was taking like six months for an issue of Astonishing X Men to come out, and it was also mm -hmm. taking six months for like All Star All Superman and like All Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder, and like yeah. it was just a nightmare of all of these comics, and you would you just never I'll knew. And it was because... I'll always remember my guy friend quietly saying on an interview, though, um, 
he said, uh, when the book is done, it's in trade. I, he's like, I never th- look at this and go, I wonder if this came out every month. <laughs> he's like, I look at it and think, oh, this looks good. And that's kind of how I feel. Like, I'm never going to, I never look at it in a comic like, oh, I wonder if this artist got this done in the five weeks they were given. I've never once thought that. I've always thought, yeah, this looks good or this doesn't look good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, but a, so like, but of course the pressures of of, of like conforming to that until right, or if you get that privilege, you know, totally, yeah, yeah. Well, and like you know, again to the to the credit of editors and companies, it's not like they don't try to make these schedules work out. Sometimes it's an artist, sometimes it's a writer. It's almost never a colorist or letterer, but you know those are different jobs. Um, this whole thing, though, it got me thinking like. Dan Slott, like, what is, like, what is, what is his deal? Like, I saw the fictionalized version of him on this. Who's the real Dan Slott? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to look at his Twitter. That's abs- that's insane. I can't so look at his Twitter. I just went on, I went on YouTube and I clicked, you know, Dan Slott interview. And the most in-depth, long-form interview I could find on Dan Slott was a three, I think two and a half hour interview. With Ethan Van Skyver. I'm sorry, with who? who? With Ethan Van Skyver, Mr. Comic Artist Secret himself. And oh so I'm God. like fascinated. I, I watched the whole thing. I put it at like 1.5 speed. <laughs> I, I leaned back. Was it? Was I this just... adversarial? Was Was Dancelot uh, uh, <laughs> defending uh, people against Ethan Van Skyver's uh, uh, toxic attitude? What was happening? Was he bringing the no, Miley Cyrus energy? It was what energy? Miley Cyrus on Joe Rogan. It was, it was not <laughs> Frost Nixon. It was more similar to, uh, I don't know, like yeah, like Joe Rogan and like Alex Jones, oh. I guess. <laughs> it was it was like they were they were boys. Like they he came he came on the show and it, like EVS said, oh, you're my uh, you're my favorite Spider Man writer, <laughs> and you know they're just fluffing each other up the whole time uh it was it was wild it's like joe and... rogan and alex jones if both of them were like beta babies <laughs> yeah so well actually you don't know but uh, daniel's a huge alex jones fan he, he oh, gets I... that i'm a tinfoil hat boy eat your neighbor's yeah. ass yeah i will eat my neighbors i'm waiting for the moment <laughs> So, so Dan, I, I'm watching this interview, and one thing strikes a chord with me almost instantly. Um, he mentions that he's from Stockton, California. Dan Slot is? Oh, no. This is something I've known. I've, <laughs> I tweeted about it, and then I blocked it out of my memory. Like, yeah, Dan Slot's from Stockton. And then I just like, forget it. I, you never saw that. You never... This is my For theory those... of balance. So, so, listeners, I'll have you know that I am from stockton california the 209 this is where i've lived for most of my life uh but i grew up in i, I was born in tracy i grew up in manteca this is the central valley this is all in the 209 san joaquin valley i'm loyal to my soil i love this place everybody who knows me knows that so when i find out that somebody is from here especially a comics pro i get obsessive about this right like the uh the guy who drew the original archie comics like in the 40s and shit from stockton sam keith from stockton like we have rich history here of comic creators mostly just me for you know frankly you're knitting a a tapestry of of stockton creators it's mainly me 
but <laughs> you're in the but, center of the tapestry holding everyone yeah, yeah yeah so but so like when i found out dan slot was from here i'm like that's crazy and i'm listening to him talk about this place that i'm from a place that was for a long time one of uh, America's most miserable cities. We broke records for per capita violence. Uh, it's it's a it's extremely volatile racially. Uh, it's you know like there's it's 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 an interesting place to grow up. Uh, I'll put it that way. I grew up like I said, Tracy Manteca, and it's a more rural place. Uh, it was a lot of migrant workers that came up here to pick fields. They settled and they built families. So that's my family's history. Right. It's like my both my grandpas came up from Mexico and uh, and, you know, settled down here with women that were their families were already here, also working the fields. And uh, it's different when I hear him talk about it because he talks about it like he says it's picturesque, sort of like Steven Spielberg suburb. And it's just like it's like real tale of two city shit, because even like where I live now it's sketchy if you walk down the wrong block right like i'm in a fairly good spot but other places not so not so chill um and evs asks him oh oh like what was that like and he talks about he tells a story that I, now i've read a couple times also about when spider-man came to town and he would like go to 7-eleven and you know his dad would give him money for comics and he would pick the the two best ones because spider-man was coming and he was going to get him to sign it and it was a whole thing. Um, he's talking about like somebody in a costume. He talked about someone in a costume, <laughs> like w- was in the back of like a Ford pickup, <laughs> and he just drove past and like signed this copy. And like you know, part of me relates to like the love of comics as a child. But as I said in episode one, my family didn't have money to get me comics, so I had a, a very outsider love for the, for this art form. You know, like there again, there's like a privilege if you're. If you're a white boy in America, in this, in this city that I'm living in now, your experience is going to be wildly different from, like, a Mexican-Americans that, you know, grew up 20 minutes away from here, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a lot, you know, also older than me, so I don't think the, the – like, we had a city, but he describes it like it's just, like, a suburb, like an E.T. It was, it was <laughs> weird to hear. Like, <laughs> we have – a downtown that has been very gutter. <laughs> like there's movies that are set down there that are, you know, they look like you would think it's like New York in some spots. Like we have towers and stuff, but anyways, it's beside the point. That's a subtle <laughs> dig at New York that like the worst parts of Stockton almost look like New York. Damn. We just, we're a port city. It's very, it's very segregated in how it, how it looks. Like, there's a Filipino area, there's an Asian area of, like, people that were dock workers, there's a Mexican area, there's a black area. It's actually the most diverse city in America by, like, demographics. And Dan just never saw that. He just, he, to him, it was, he was a white guy. So he, you know, he's, he rode his bike to 7-Eleven, bought comics, went home, right? Um, and his, his EVS asks him, what did your dad do? And he says that his dad... Uh, his dad commuted every day from Modesto to Stockton and uh, he worked at Shell Company you know like the gas stations so I'm like that's fascinating I wonder what Shell was doing in you know the 1970s 1980s in Modesto, Mm. California 
He said he he was a chemical. He ran a chemical lab. That's what he said specifically. So I looked it up. I got on Google. I started doing some research. And Shell in the seventies and eighties were making like pesticides and fumigants for agricultural work. So it was a fascinating thing to hear about. This guy talked about this childhood that he had growing up that was picturesque, that was funded by his dad making chemicals that were actively poisoning my family and my uh, communities. And it's, it would never even, I don't think, I don't think it would ever even click to him that that was happening. I mean, this has probably never crossed his mind. Yeah. I looked up, I looked up all these different lawsuits that Shell lost for the things they were putting in fumigants, their top-selling fumigants that were like uh, they were used to kill worms, but they were it was it said they said it was used to kill worms. They said it was 100% active ingredients, but actually it was just by a uh, byproduct of waste from other chemicals that they made, and it actually didn't kill worms as easily. But they were like crop dusting fields with this shit. <laughs> While people were in the fields working, I'm sure. Like, this is back in, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, when, you know, uh, regulations were looser. And they're not great now. <laughs> you know? you get, I, I retweet UFW things every other day, I feel this like. This is like while they were or, developing Agent Orange shit. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they were. They were developing things to keep the crops alive. Because it was about... The product that you're putting out into the world it's not about the people who are working to make that right they didn't care if it was safe for the people working the fields they cared about are we going to kill the vegetables that they're pulling out because that's what matters the product and you know it's it's an interesting thing uh yeah like here's a thing from chem and Eng news 1976 shell development will operate just two laboratories one in houston they were going to do that for oil the other lab is in Modesto, where work in biological sciences is done mainly for the development of agricultural chemicals. And I don't want to get into the other ones because we went so long here. But, you know, <laughs> there's like a litany of what those chemicals were doing that were actively harmful to the people that were working those fields. And eventually the soil that they were poisoning that, you know, like people have gotten cancer from the, the water because the way our soil is out here, it's like a big sandbox, like. You could put shit in it, and it's going to stay there for a while. That's just the makeup of the soil. So, it's, you know, it's a, it's a... While we're celebrating Thanksgiving, while we're looking at colonialism and how this shit works, like, that's the kind of message that I I pulled this <laughs> from my research. I'm blown away over lot. here. That, yeah. that is incredible. To think about the, the synchronicity of it, the wild... Uh... Uh history of his privilege permeating in such a way where he'll see his life as as this picturesque picking up comics that he was gonna get because actual spider-man was gonna be in town Mm. to sign his books meanwhile his father is developing the chemicals that are absolutely destroying communities in that same town i mean he was he was developing poisons toxins yeah you know what i mean yeah and you know i don't i don't i'm not naive 
and I wouldn't say that Dan Slott is responsible for that. You I know do. What I mean? I, I'm uh, me. Daniel <laughs> Irizarry on the podcast is saying that this is on Dan Slott right now. But but you know the lack of awareness. I think that when you're doing that, when you're when you're, it's it's it is the white experience in America that you could grow up and not notice the harm that your ancestors have caused. And that's true throughout like this experiment or whatever of like, you know, civilization. But also like now I look at his Twitter and, you know, you know, Daniel, one thing you know about me is I, I love to do people like, deep searches into people's twitter <laughs> histories i'm terrified I, I, i'm extremely <laughs> terrified <laughs> as the guest right now like i, I don't want to know what's been going up on me like i've seen this shit's gonna i've turn. seen tweets from 2008 from people that like <laughs> tweets in a completely different format than what we know of what, modern twitter and when i say that he means like the way i dig up things of our friends like uh what our our dear friend Cam Del Rosario on a on the Gutter Boys podcast, I, I discovered that he was a rapper, Ooh. and then I just started digging up all the tweets where he started talking about hip hop. So, anyways, I wanted to look up something about dance dance slot, uh, just in relation to all this because, um, you know he's a he's a lib like me. That's one thing that came across on the EVS thing is that you know he he is not conservative. He has liberal politics. That's even though they got, even though that they had that fighting against them, their respect for each other as peers made it such that it didn't matter because they were friendly, right? Um, Convenient. But I, I was, I was curious. You know, he grew up in a rural Northern California. He must have compassion for like other young kids that are maybe Latino, right? Kids in cages, maybe. So. You know, he did. He tweeted about kids in cages to make an anti-Trump argument 22 times. Um, and all these are, like I said, just rhetorical. Like, oh, you're not going to you're going to vote third party. What you want more kids in cages? Oh Things God. like that. Yeah, right? it's like the whole and buzzword together specifically, specifically kids in cages. And that's one thing that really pissed me off after like because these same people would that would tweet about that would support Warren, who was not in in favor of abolishing ice, you know, Bernie's stance on that was, was a lot harsher. Um, and now currently Joe Biden, uh, you know, he personally set up the camps. He personally, like, you know, the Obama administration personally fucking deported like 2 million people. The deporter so, in chief. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering like how many times maybe Dan Slott, since he has this compassion for kids in cages has tweeted about that since none how many times has he tweeted about abolishing ice do you think you want to guess i, I want to say 10 10 times <laughs> no no times no times he never once suggested they close down ice in fact there was one time he talked about ice and it was fascinating to me again just from my perspective as somebody who does want to abolish ice who does think that the only way to stop that you know uh, that from happening is to just shut down that department. Uh, he tweeted about ICE in the in this regard. He said, ICE has not endorsed Trump. They haven't. A union of some of the workers of ICE have, but not the federal agency. He just keeps saying it. He in came out to cape, he said that. cape for ICE. He caped for ICE. Like, why, like, <laughs> this man, why would you... This man... Why? Not all ICE. 
He just, yeah. he said not all ice. It was when I saw that I could not believe it. I so I like, just don't understand the rationale. Like I just don't because he just I think because he's a guy who has faith in establishments, faith in you know the the structure that has put him in this position, and yeah. does not think critically of it. And again, that's just going back to these like Gen X kind of people. That like you know of I'm I'm pretty sure he's Gen X. Is that slot yeah, Gen he X? Is. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. So there's a lot of these people that are that age who don't have to think critically about that because it's not like you said not going to affect them materially in any way. They get to pretend they get to do that for aesthetics, for rhetoric, but it does. They don't have to believe in it, and that's the difference between somebody like us and somebody like him. Well, Ramon, to you, this is probably too mainstream for you, um, but do you listen to Chris Hayes' podcast at all? Chris Hayes? Yeah. Oh, no. Because he... I was like, who are you talking about? You're right, the MSNBC guy, the one good MSNBC guy. Um, but, like, his episode this week is about political hobbyism and how it's, like, yeah. stupid. And, like, that's kind of exactly what it is that you're you're talking about there with Slot being, like, not everybody in ICE or whatever. And it's just, like... I don't know, like on the merits. Yeah, if you it's, had, it's hashtag resisting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you, you, you talk about the politics, but you don't like engage in, in in the strategies for improving people's material conditions outside of an explicitly like partisan framework. But like, it just it drives me nuts because like I actually know like a tiny little bit about the history of ICE, and it's like I don't know why you would be like a Biden supporter and like think that ICE shouldn't go away because like that was an extremely intrasegent um department even when obama was the president like sure like we can talk about obama's deportation numbers and how they went up and then that yeah. then the, that that was like a devil's bargain to try to get shit through the senate that obviously didn't work and like it was like really bad to use that as a political football but even within the context of like obama increasing deportation numbers or like whatever excuse they want to give with who they wanted targeted versus who they didn't ice's like willingness to comply with the ways that obama the obama administration wanted to get that done were shit like there was a oh, lot well, of let's, there let's was talk about tons of because... institutional pushback from ice against obama so it's yeah. like why the fuck i mean i'm guessing again dan probably just doesn't know that because he hasn't read the right. same articles that we do but to me it's like well why would you even want to weigh in on like the stupid weedsy distinction between the union endorsing something and like the institution endorsing something when you haven't even right. looked into the history of how this organ like how this this department this this bureaucratic thing has not actually faithfully executed the like desires of the executive branch and and did them worse than what were are what was already like a bad and, and destructive right. policy. Well, so right now, the Obama, the, uh, the Biden administration, they put, they, they, you know, when in the middle of the transition, they put uh, Cecilia Munoz, uh, who I can't remember what she did in the Obama administration, but they had her sort of in charge of like immigration for like shaping that policy. And this is a woman who defended kids, kids in, in cages. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, a lot of these libs that talked about this shit, I, like, listen, I've looked it up a lot, Emma, just every, because it's, it just, it gets, it pisses me off so much. Yeah. Because I, I legitimately do care about that. 
Like I said, my grandparents were immigrants who came over as children. Uh, my grand, my grandfather, anyways, and illegally, you know, by those rules, undocumented, and you know, he built a life here that you know is is beautiful. Like you know, it's the American dream, and so like you know, I'm I'm very I'm very sympathetic to those people who are trying to do that now, and this is a woman who is you know, had the worst arguments of why that shit was necessary. And there is no, like when that shit happened with Trump, when they were, when he was bringing people in, they did deep dives into these people's histories to make sure that these people, like we knew how bad they were, but we're not doing that for this lady. Mm -hmm. I mean like, so yeah, activists are. And then since then, also they've, uh, they've, they've uh, installed, they've said that who the new head of, uh, the Department of Homeland yeah. Security is a man named Ali Mayorkas, who they're saying is, well, I mean, he is the first Lati- Latino head of this agency, which would be impressive if it wasn't only 20 years old, I guess, right? right. But it is. And so I read the Washington Post article where they talked about it. And, you know, it's a mixed bag there. Like, he created DACA, which, you know, it, he created the registry that the Trump administration used to as a wedge against that these like uh, activists basically right and they were worried even disclosing that information to the Obama administration like i remember being on tumblr yeah. and following immigration activists like totally. the people who radicalized me on the specific issue of immigration saying like you, you know daca could be a pathway but we're handing over this information this government yep. what's going to happen to it how is the obama and their worst fears were realized yeah. Tumblr you know, was on the li- ball. And liberal, I think to the eyes of like a lot of these like liberal people, you trust that once you win, you've defeated evil and they're never going to take power again. Yeah, what but I was we, what I was going to say about uh, uh you you're talking exactly about what I was going to say about Dan Slott and his caping for ice. It's this goddamn good Republican myth. Yeah. This I this uh, Biden, I mean, for liberal insistence on a podcast in 2017. Yeah, and he's like, <laughs> not all, not all EVSs, or like, not all <laughs> ICE members, uh, and not all Republicans are bad, even after they've spent the entirety of the Trump administration being their worst selves. And yeah. and what is the main agenda? What is Alyssa Milano tweeting about? I, I've been thinking it's, about this the entire time, Daniel. That whole like I like the entire time we've been on this tangent, I've just been thinking about like here's my fig leaf to like Trump's border. Like I have her muted, but I just yeah, no, that tweet will get anywhere. Even if you muted her, you will see yeah. that dumb take. Alyssa Milano is a woman who is trans, though, right? I mean, she put out that tweet. Oh, my like, God. I've, oh, my God. <laughs> I fucking forgot about that Alanis Morissette song Latinx. lyric bullshit. Oh she my is black. God. She is trans. She is all these things because we are all one yeah. people. Well, you know yes. what? We um, don't need another Caitlyn Jenner, honey. We've got one. We've also got a Charlotte Clymer. <laughs> We're good. We're good. Oh, fuck Charlotte Clymer. She's a, true, she's a true enemy of the people. She said she oh, wants be- to consider re-enlisting in the army army because biden is the president are you it's fucking i just well, she wants him to lift the ban so that she could get in the army again right yeah. that's the whole thing do, do you think so, do you think chelsea manning wants to re-enlist 
Like Chelsea Manning, I think wants to not be in prison right now. Yeah, no, Jimmy. Like it's yeah. Like it, you, you, it's, it's insane. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just the idea of being part of an imperial war machine like that, and and wanting to go back to it is is like bad enough in in that scale. But you're also just like, like you are just literally eating your own, like your actual little. Climber yeah, wants to. Climber wants to reenlist <sighs> so that she can waterboard Chelsea Manning. Yeah, like, are you fucking kidding me? You know. So a little bit more about Mayorkas. Um, the other thing he did mm-hmm. besides Staka was he created a fraud detection program while he was uh, working in the Obama administration, so where they could like suss out people who were committing fraud in this shit. And wouldn't you believe it? That was also incredibly ramped up during the Trump administration to like just you know get any tiny charge against people to deport them. Um. Yeah, because DACA so, is like, if you have committed any kind of infraction, if you are not yeah. perfect, you're gone. Well, I mean, like, this fraud protection program that he set up, and, uh, like, the camps. Like, you only have to, like, plant a seed for these people, uh, uh, conservatives. Like, people who really want to cause, like, true evil. Like, you create these things, and you you basically, like, handing them a gun and saying, oh, don't shoot us with it, please. Yeah, they make specific rules to shooting time. people, and they and then yeah. conservatives will find all the loopholes to shoot people. So, like, I don't trust this guy to be in charge of ICE because, like, what crazy things can he rationalize in his head that would negatively affect somebody if, like, you know, Biden doesn't win in two, in four years, right? Well, Biden. But again, these are things that years, don't. Yeah. When, well, when you know, Harris when, runs, yeah. Whoever, yeah. whoever. Um, and a little bit about his history, which I just found fascinating. I don't want to, like, especially after the conversation we had today, I don't want to gatekeep. But it's it's just about it's just about the aesthetics versus, like, the reality of the situation. Yes. So, Mayorkas is the son of Cuban Jews who fled Castro's revolution. According to the Washington Post, his mother was a Romanian Jew who escaped the Holocaust and arrived in Cuba in the 40s, where she met his father, who was of Sephardic descent. So... His mom was Jewish, came, went to Cuba to escape the Holocaust, which is, like, insane. And then she happened to meet another Jewish person there. They had a Jewish baby. Then they moved to California. He was brought up in L.A. So, but, like, why are they saying that he's Latinx? Because he was born in Cuba and then moved as a baby? I'm they, like, they're, it, are they pulling a Joaquin Phoenix on him? <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix is so, quote unquote like, Puerto Rican because he's because he was born down here. Oh, for real? Yeah. Oh, we, fuck, we, we, no, uh, we'll claim him. He's a great guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy shit! I didn't know that's that rules. They're definitely pulling a Latinx, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> They're pulling a Joaquin a Joaquin Latinx, bro. One hundred percent. Like, I get it. Like, he was born in Cuba. But he had to escape because of the Cuban Revolution because he's not native Cuban. He's so not even. How would he even understand? Like you know, like again, like they're trying. Yeah, to Marco say Rubio he's... has more claim on Cuban. Ted Cruz. They're saying he's a Cuban guy. Ted he's, Cruz. He's a Jewish guy who is from Cuba. Yeah. Which is like again, it's a distinction that I would not say he's not Latinx no, or whatever, right. right? I wouldn't do that. But I think it's fascinating that for liberals, they don't have to they don't have to make those kind of qualifications because they can just say, what? We hired a Latinx guy. Like, what's the difference? Who cares that most Cubans are fucking Republicans anyways? Well, like, 
Yeah, but it, it Sorry, it's, it's also how like these like quote unquote firsts like just get used as a smokescreen, right? It's always like yeah. it's the first you're the first this, you're the first that, and it's like like that's fantastic, but it just so often obscures the fact of like you have to hold certain politics to be yeah. from that group in order to achieve that. I mean, it's you see things like it goes everywhere from like the mayor of Chicago and they're like, we're going to get a lesbian mayor no matter who wins. But it's just like, well, look how that's turned right. out. Or it's like, you know, it goes back to that Eric Andre. Like it always goes back to the Eric Andre thing where he's got. It always with, goes back to Eric Andre. With Scary Spice, right? And, and he's like, did Margaret Thatcher have girl power? <laughs> and she's like, yes. And he's like, did Margaret Thatcher exercise girl it power? Was such a powerful question. You know, when she when she funded death squads in Northern Ireland. Um you know, and, and that's just, that drives me nuts because like, you know, like I grew up in a generation where like, yeah, where like Margaret Thatcher was this world leader and it was like a big deal that, that she was a woman, yeah. but it's like, but you just look at who Margaret Thatcher was and the policies right. that she espoused. Right. And it's just like, so, you know, yeah, I mean, and, and like, I don't, I don't want to relitigate 2016, but you know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh we yeah. know. We know. Um, but yeah, so like, I guess also, uh, Dan Slott didn't tweet about either of those two people. Um. <laughs> Could you imagine Dan Slott talking about like the new appointment? No, he's done. He's done with this. He's Biden done. won. That is Kurt Busiek took off the resist. They yeah. are done, dude. Oh, yeah. They, I saw that. I was, I shed a tear. Yeah. I said, oh, no, we're not resisting anymore. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, this is, the, the whole thing w- with this shit is, it's it's all aesthetics to these people. Like, the, the idea of any kind of rebellion, it's always been fraudulent. Um, and then you have people like us, <laughs> people who probably listen to this, I would imagine. Some people might just listen to me because they like my art, I don't know. But, you know, like, radical politics, like... Um, and first of all, although, by the way, our politics aren't that radical, but (laughs) comparatively, yeah, comparatively, I'm not a tanky or anything, but like, you know, these people, they, they would say that it's wrong to even bring this stuff up about Dan Slott's dad or Dan Slott or whatever, because like, wouldn't it be nice just to be nice? You know what I mean? Like being nice is not politics. Now's the time. Now's the time for love and reconciliation. <laughs> it, it isn't. It's time to turn the other cheek. It's this in the rolling over of the liberals to to even like the Trump coup. Like they're trying to find ways to be like, but we just have to understand that he's processing his feelings. And we have to let them know we're not even going to prosecute you. We're not going to do anything that might uh, show consequences for your actions. We're just, we're trying to build back better. Yeah. America is I would say, I, I would say a lot of these people, their heart's in the right place, but their boots, as always, you know, stomping on the human face forever. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> well, it looks like it took about two hours to cook a turkey this Thanksgiving. Woo! Yeah. Got that's... a nice crispy little butterball. This, is, this in the one's oven. gonna come out tender. <laughs> yeah. Off we, the bone. I, you know what? And I love white meat. That's my favorite <laughs> kind. So slice them up. You know. 
And uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about Emma. Oh my god, okay. Oh, right. Before we wrap up, yeah. I mean, we got a lot of we got a lot in there about you too, but we just want to like we want to talk about your projects, your work and stuff before we do wrap it up. Right. Okay, um Emma, real qu- like how long do you have? Cuz I don't want to keep you too much longer. I I also don't want to, you know, we'll probably have to wrap this up in like half an hour, is that cool? Yeah. No, like I'm I'm good. I'm good. Um what so one thing I do want to talk about that's an interesting sort of thing that had come up uh in this last, you know, like week or so of the dance slot chaos <laughs> <laughs> that has ensued of uh, you know, I, I feel like there a lot of sensitivity of, of creatives has been called into question. Like people saying, you know, why are you making art if you can't, you know, take the lumps of like a negative review? Right. Personally, like I said, me, I've never really had any negative reviews. People generally love me. They think this guy's a true outlaw. What do I have against him? Right. His art's great. He's great. The reviews um, are all like, I, I want to be him. Yeah. But I have a couple of friends, Emma, that had a bone to pick with you. Okay. Uh, you reviewed my buddy Nick Barber's book, Ringside. Do you remember this? Joe Keating? Yeah, years ago. You gave it 9 out of 10. Yeah. However, in one passage, you said he had he had drawn a hand that looked like an amorphous blob. Oh, yeah. Now, personally, I found that hilarious. <laughs> in fact, that book came out how long ago? 2015, I think. 2015 or 20. So, like, but yeah, it's 2015. five years. It's five years yeah. old. I didn't look it up. I just remembered the thing because I've been... Tell him that his hands look like amorphous blobs for about five years. Uh, have you had any interactions with like creators that have been upset with you like that? Holy shit, have I ever? Um, I Jerry Conway picked a fight with me. Oh wow! Um, and it was did he use like a did he use like a rotoscope? <laughs> like how the fuck? <laughs> he like, did he. Did he have, like, like, a dial phone? Like, Yeah, did he we, find you in, like, the, the yellow pages or something? No, that, what happened? Twitter. Um, he came winging out of nowhere because it wasn't even about him. But there was there was some, like, stupid trans portrayal that, that I was talking about. And he... And what? Um, I don't even remember what it was at, at the time. I mean, also because there's, like, there have been so many. There have been, like, so many... Okay. Um, it wasn't one of like the big ones. Like it wasn't like Divided States of Hysteria. It wasn't Airboy. I don't know what it was, but you know, or I may have just been like criticizing generally, like just how shitty trans rep is. But it was probably Saga. Actually, it was probably me riding against Saga. Um, okay. And he came like winging out of nowhere to lecture me about how like Will and Grace was like important to the development <laughs> of like LBGT like acceptance, and that like we have to like chill and just let the straight people paved the way for us. Um, That's sick. And I, like, I got into it with him over it, because obviously I'm not going to, like, sit back. Well, who am I going to trust about this issue? You or Jerry Conway? Yeah, the creator of The Punisher. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the guy who invented fridging. And, like, I just, I, like, at the... Whoa, 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 whoa. That's Ron Mars. How dare you? Well, I mean, no. that That's just the You're... named... That's just the name. That's not when it. Oh, okay. Yeah, the know. actual I, I fridge see, incident. You mean. you mean the practice, the practice not the actual right. fridge? No, not the actual fridge. <laughs> shout out to Ron Mars. <laughs> oh, huge shout out to Ron Mars. We love him. Um, here. Love you, Ron. Ron, come on the show. But like, <laughs> yeah, but but so so the dude that like invented this kind of shit, like, cause he and that was the thing. Like, it went back and forth, and I was like, this is absolutely going nowhere. Um, so I just made a Gwen Stacy joke and. 
and like a Wu-Tang lyric and, and just blocked him. And he blocked me too. And it was great. Um, because like, this is the dude that killed Gwen Stacy, like snapped Gwen Stacy's neck. And this is the dude that, that oh. created like the Punisher's background story of like his family dying. So like, this is the dude. Yeah. These who, are like, quintessential. Yeah. This is what uh, I'm saying. Fridgings. This is the, yeah. like, Trina Robbins has more smoke for him than, like, anybody else, right? Because um, she was talking about that shit before, like, Gail Simone wrote, like, Women in the Refrigerator and stuff. So, yeah, he's come after me. Um, I've, there have been, like, a lot of, I don't know if, if many of them have ever been, like, over a review um, yeah. that I wrote, except for, like, Kelly Thompson called me a hater. Um but well, and she well, hadn't that and, and she the, the the hilarious thing is that like she hadn't actually read the substance of that particular review um yeah. before because it just she, like i you know i i was i've always been like kind of tight on like just sort of what works and what doesn't in her writing and she didn't appreciate that um yeah but yeah so it's kind of funny because like i was just like i didn't know if she had read it or not but it was just like is is like today the day to do this um but yeah yeah i know i know was that for gem oh yeah it was it was the gem well i know yeah i know sophie great friend of mine i talked to her like almost every day she was also one that was like you need to talk to emma about the beef that i had with her i was like i didn't know but you guys had there well there was no beef that that like and here's the thing that that pisses me off about that entire situation um is like beef was created but, like, uh, the problem is is that, like, social media, um, and, like, I didn't know whether we were going to talk about this or not, but, like, I knew it was hanging in the background because y'all are tight, and that's dope. Um, yeah. But, you know, like, you know, oh, Sophie did the theme song to the show. Yeah, she did. She absolutely <laughs> did. Um, and it. she is actually yeah. one of the founding members of the Stingers. Um, but, so, the whole thing there is is, like, social media and fandom is built around destroying and eating trans women like this is just it is what it right. is right and and that's a big aspect of tumblr culture and why i was talking about it being ambivalent um and like also the comic book industry loves drama and the thing is like right. the comic book industry does not hence this whole episode by the yeah way, but... <laughs> yeah for sure but like i say that because the comic book industry doesn't give a fuck about trans women nobody was like yeah. blowing up the airboy incident because they give a fuck about trans women um, they give a fuck about the Airboy thing because I piped off and then like Brandon, like Brandon Cram put on like a pair of boxing gloves and like waited in, um, and like shit was popping off over it. So people were like, Ooh, you know, and then like my friends set up, <laughs> um, a hashtag, like, like invaded the image expo hashtag that year to like derail shit and make stuff really uncomfortable for them until they answer to it. Right. So so like this is the whole thing and so like of course people and i talked to other trans people i talked to my friends and like i've like that one came out of comicosity and like i talked directly with my editor who's cis um but is like no like he is he's amazing like we we have had difficult conversations about how to handle so many different comics over the years like there is just a level of trust um, between us that you only get with battle scars um and so like it was how do we handle this how do we deal with this because this is a coming out story of a trans character in a kid's comic 
And like the the phrasing of the coming out and the way that the misfits dealt with it wasn't really dope. It, it's like you guys were talking about, like Daniel was saying earlier, right? That like I have to get in there because there's young readers. If things go sideways, you want to make sure that you know they understand that they're affirmed in this. And the whole thing was like Blaze was like, "Hi, I'm you know I'm trans," and that and the, and the misfits were like, "Okay, we don't care." And it was just sort of like no acknowledgement of like how difficult that would have been for blaze right and that was the substance of what i wrote you know and that was it like i didn't go hard like if you go and read the reviews that i did where i was angry <laughs> versus that one it's extremely clear um because i wasn't mad i was just like i i think this could have gone a lot better i think it should have you know more more should have gone into it you know um and a lot of people brought a lot of shit to me for it. Um, a lot of people dogpiled Sophie's inbox on Tumblr, um, erasing my trans identity and just like coming to her to shit talk me because whatever, having no idea who I was. And like, I didn't have my Tumblr attached to stuff, so I escaped that. Um, but then she got attacked too. And this is this yeah. is what really upsets me is that like the comic just could have been tweaked a bit. And if you go back and if you read the issue now, if you find it on Comixology, if you find it in the trade, it's been fixed, right? Dialogue was changed. I don't know what the internal process was. I don't know who did it, who approved it, whatever. Yeah. But it got fixed later, and I found out about it later. And I've talked about the whole, like, fixing mistakes in, in trade and, like, updating the Comixology Masters before over other issues. Because, like, Batgirl 36 um, or 37 or whatever the fuck it was. Um, went through the same process and we've seen other comics that have done that also to, to right. change difficult phrasing and that's really that's all it was and the thing is is like people put a lot of weight on like where Sophie fell into that progress like process and like you know pitted that against me or, or vice versa and right. like number one I, you know she had been out like I don't know probably less than a year when that came out um, and she was not the credited writer on that issue. Kelly Thompson was the credited writer on that issue. Don't bring, don't put the weight of this on the artist when they're not the credit writer. I'm sure there were conversations. I'm sure there were things that were happening, but at no point should it at, had ever been on her to be the one voice in the room to affirm that that worked, Right. They needed a consultant yeah. there. They need other people to affirm this. I don't even want to be like the sole arbiter of my own work. You're never going to hear me with that stupid image comics has no editors and that's a cool thing. Kind of like rhetoric that came out of like Airboy and Divide Stacey Fisteria and all that. Like editors are evil, blah, 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 whatever. Grow up, right? Um, and that's it. And that's like what I was saying. Like I talked to my other trans friends about about that right like i had a lot of conversations behind the scenes with friends and peers even about like airboy trying to figure out how to talk about airboy like i talked to my friends who work in addiction to be like you know there there's he's clearly like robinson was clearly acting out in this comic and he's like performing this whole like alcoholic persona it, it, it's like you know how do i dance around this how do i not fuck this up like you go out and you talk to people and you gather resources and information but it was just like Everybody either wanted to talk about, talk about me or talk about Sophie 
and nobody wanted to be like, okay, where was the editorial oversight on this? You know, who did Kelly Thompson talk to or not talk to in, in terms of like vetting what was going on? Nobody talked about the substance of the actual conversation that happened in the comic. They just wanted to rip one of the two of us apart because that's what it is that happens, right? And it's so insidious the ways that yeah. this industry and that fandom and that Twitter tries to separate trans women and rip them apart. Like Rich Johnson tried to manufacture a beef between me and Sarah Horrocks once um, because we had said slightly different things about Brian Wood on Twitter. Um, and he framed it as if like I was but, having sorry, some kind of like polar opposite like opinion from her. Um, and I just like, I came in the comments and I was like, yeah, thanks for, you know, including me in the, in the conversation here. But like, yeah, no, we're in agreement. We just have different ways yeah. of phrasing this. So like, that's what it is. And it just, that whole thing was extremely upsetting to me because of just like what the mob does. But it's also like, Sophie has been like the template and like a hero to me for like an extremely long time before either one of us were out, right? Like I first met her in 2006 yeah. in San Diego. Um, and like just just her style, what she does has always been really meaningful to me. Um, and so like when that happened and, you know, all of that went down, it was crushing because it's like all I wanted to do was say that like this conversation should have been like framed better it should have had better editorial oversight and this is what needs to happen you know but then all of this drama gets stirred up because people who don't give a fuck about like well there's an online there's a lot of currency online for for doing that you know what i mean yeah and like i think i think that's one of the things that i think uh creators that get overly sensitive they they misrepresent sometimes that like the value of that like they think that canceling someone is the goal like for yeah. you like if you were to say this is why airboy sucks like, oh they just want to be the one that collected that scalp or whatever right you know to use the the of the season terminology but no <laughs> you want that phrasing to be right or mm-hmm. you want that thing to not be like a toxic thing in this culture and i think you know I think I think what you're saying is, is probably on point, and it's unfortunate for how that went down between you and Sophie. Um, you know, she's probably going to listen to this and talk to me about it. <laughs> so hopefully you guys get to chat about it too. But that, that's the thing that I think is is often sort of misconstrued by other pros. Yeah. Is like, you know, you should... When, uh, you know, when I worked on <laughs> the book at Vertigo... Yeah. Um there was an arsler in the first issue and oh, I forgot uh, parents that. parents of disabled kids were really upset and they reached out to me on Twitter and were like, Hey, like we don't like that, that, you know, that character uses that language. And in my mind, it's like, well, it's a bad guy. He's about to get the shit kicked out of him like in three pages, but I don't get to tell you somebody who's dealing with that issue, that that's, that that's okay. That, or like, listen this is how i see it like i'm not dealing with that like that way you know what i mean so i was just like oh i'm really sorry you know that's not my like i didn't write it but you know i'll talk to the editors and whatever about fixing that or whatever you know what i mean we had a discussion about it and you know but that's there's an appropriate way that you can handle that 
And luckily, this wasn't a situation where people were trying to, like, draw lines in the sand over that issue. You know what I mean? Yeah. Partially because I was just like, yeah, you're right, you know? And I told the writer, hey, like, I don't know if you're getting this too, but if, you know, don't fucking, you know, don't fight back on, like, this is not a hill to die on. And, you know, that guy's a piece of shit, but I think he agreed on that, at least. Yeah. No, for real. And, and that's all it is, you know. Um, yeah, it's it just the dynamics of, of all of that and the incentives, you know, are pretty bad because, like, I had, like, this reputation of, of being, like, a heavy hitter or, like, an assassin or something um, because I would come at these issues in certain ways because um, yeah. I would I would look at, the like, the valence of it, of the execution of it and be, like, like what's the tone and tempo that, that you need to talk about this right but like i obviously did have a pretty you know intense side when stuff like airboy would like happen um and like i'm writing a piece right now i don't know exactly how i'm going to execute it i kind of want to try it as an illustrated essay but i'm kind of like writing about processing all of the warren ellis shit um love to see it yeah um, but I kind of like there was stuff that initially it was just kind of like just wanted to talk about how the meaning of his most important work is just shredded by his personal failings and, and the behavior that he engaged in. And he, you know, because he put so much of a personal like a persona and this particular outlook into it, it's just like you can't read it anymore. It's done and it's gone because he didn't ha hold up his end of the bargain. Um yeah. But I kind of like really spent a lot more time digging into my history um, with Warren Ellis comics because like there was a period of time in my life a long time ago, like when I talked about J.I. Deaton and kind of like stealing Cyclops out from under um, Marvel, like Spider was like a whole fucking mood for me for like years and, and drove me to really start writing and getting into more like like writing political stuff from political valence and getting into that and like dealing with this anger that I had. Um, and so it's just kind of like, even in like later years when I was doing stuff for rainbow hub and that kind of thing, like I had a bit more of a nuanced approach, but there still really kind of was that going on, but it was, it was almost like a protective thing because one of the reasons why, like, I just really want to emphasize that like, I'm done as like a quote unquote critic. Like I'm not Emma, like the critic or whatever. Like I'm a cartoonist, sure. like that's who I am. Because so much of the time that I spent doing review work and writing about the industry was done in a state of like distress and almost like felt like a lot of the things that I was writing were like almost in a way under duress. Um, mm. Because like we are blessed with a community that has so many more um, trans voices and I want to like say trans and non-binary because like non-binary people are obviously included in the flag like the entire point of the flag is that the white stripe is anything in the middle of those two poles you don't have to medically sure. do whatever but I do want to be specific in making sure that they feel heard when I include them in this um, but it's like we have so much more participation in critical spheres there's so many more people who are out there writing about this stuff and who can answer this stuff um, but like it was it was just in such a state of isolation when airboy happened right um that it was just kind of like i have to take this on you know and a lot of other yeah. cases too 
Um, and so it's just like, I don't look back at those as happy times, especially when things like the gem stuff happen and get out of control and you, you have to deal with this. It's just, it's not a good place. And I've kind of been thinking a lot about like when I was like, okay, well, what's my, what was my exit path through all of this? Right. And it's, you know, I, I started turning like a more harsh and more critical gaze back on like the influence of like transmetropolitan stuff on me because like I knew that when I was writing angry that it felt like shit that it was like a fossil fuel yeah. that it was like this that it was just it was very like I've I've used a lot of like red lantern metaphors um before and and that has always really spoken to me of just like this corrosive feeling of anger but like you touch upon that anger in transcription I do a lot yeah because like and that's kind of the point was that transcription was after I started medically transitioning. So it wasn't just that, you know, like I really kind of embraced womanhood and like being a woman. Right. It was that like once, you know, the blockers did their work and like like my testosterone levels dropped fast and hard. Like that was a big thing that my doctor was telling me. And it just like. I lost my capacity for that kind of anger. Like I can still get mad about stuff, but like that just blackout shit is like gone. I just have completely different emotional responses to the world now. And it's great that I found that off ramp. But if I'm looking at like just sort of how I leverage that like angry white dude energy, even as a trans woman um, through stuff like Transmetropolitan, I feel a lot more responsibility to my community and the way that we talk about gender than to just say, wow, my off ramp was like not being a man anymore. Right. Mm. Because like one of the things that I found about Warren Ellis's later work is there's two things that stand out in like extremis. He tells Maya, he's like, I knew that you would always surpass me. Right. But of course, like she got caught up in the capitalist hustle and became a terrorist. So it's kind of like this, you know, tragic happens to a lot of us right but it's just it that there was there was meaning in that right that she got twisted up in the machine because she was a woman and because she wasn't born rich like tony so there's there's an interesting kind of thing there um but then you get to like supreme blue rose and you know when when diana when the like lois lane character finds like supreme he's just in his like clark Kent persona he's like i'm just another white dude who doesn't know what's going on and so there's this like motif of like women overtaking men and taking over the leadership of things, right? And the Wildstorm kind of like did that in a smarter way in terms of like where the direction of the new authority was going relative to what it was 20 years ago. Um, but you kind of look at both of those instances and it... What happened after that? <laughs> nobody knows. <laughs> nobody fucking knows. Uh, um, but like... <laughs> It's just this kind of like men just clearing the field for women, right? Like it's and and obviously Brian K. Vaughn does the same thing in Why the Last Man, um, and he's kind of doing the same thing on Saga, where it's just kind of like, well, men just need to step out of the way, and it's like, no, we don't need men to just step out of the way and disappear and let women do all the work of reconstructing. That's fucking stupid. It's it's just, you know, keeping those same like gendered structures you know, under patriarchy, like, of, of who does the emotional labor the same way that it's always been, you know? And and so it's not exactly buying into that mentality or, like, the stupid, like, future is female thing by me saying, well, I escape toxic masculinity by not being a man because being a man is a valid choice. 
whether you were assigned that at birth or not. (laughs) And masculinity is, you know, I'm borrowing this from a guest on the Gender Reveal podcast, but like masculinity is still a myth. It's still a collection of stories that we are told are inculcated into us to perform in a certain way. And if we change the myths around what masculinity is, we can get different masculinities. And one of the reasons why I really want to emphasize that is because like I talked about the invisibilization of like trans men and non-binary people in comics. And in a, in a lot of circles, like trans men have to deal with a ton of shit for like, why would you want to be a man? Why would you assert yourself as a man under patriarchy? Patriarchy is not like, a patriarchy is a specific construct, but that doesn't mean that any expression of masculinity has to be patriarchal or that you're buying into a patriarchal system by asserting masculinity. Um, and, and, you know, like there, there's a whole range, like I've already made a Buck Angel joke, right? But it's just like, there is a whole range of masculinities and like a lot of non-binary people and trans men and like, even like cis men, whether they're gay or not, they, they exist who have like deeply like thought through performances of their gender and like this is a process that trans people typically have to go through a lot and i think trans women do like we do get a lot of you know credit or like even weird reverence and fetishizing for the fact that we like deeply think about gender and deconstruct it in order to like reconstruct it for ourselves and that shows up sometimes in really weird fetishy ways in when cis people write comics about us and like you kind of you see it a little bit in effigy but i'm like chill with how tim seeley did it there because it's a bit more unique but you kind of you see it in like wick did with cassandra you see it in like angela with like sarah who is so underwritten but just her her one thing we know about her is that she sees through everything and so there's this this kind of like oracular like shamanistic fetishism that people have for like how trans women see gender and like perform it. Um, but we don't extend any of that same credit to like non-binary or like masculine of center or like trans men. And so it's really like, so I don't want to stop there, right? I want to say like, like we, we do have to create new myths about the structures of masculinity. I completely agree. Yeah, it it it, it is uh something that uh seldom gets talked about, but especially now uh is 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 very important. I feel like um, men are kind of adrift at sea in this um, futurist female type uh, conversation, and there needs to be new examples. There needs to be new uh, ways of performing whatever masculinity is that tells them that uh, you don't have to be this destructive self. Well, um, I think we should probably start wrapping up. Okay. Um, I didn't even get to the OnlyFans (laughs) stuff. I really want to ask you about that. But you're going to be a returning champion. So don't even worry about that. You're gonna come yeah, back. Yeah, we so we want to talk about the more. actual transcription itself. Yeah. It's such a it's such a beautiful. We're gonna read. Tra- we're both going to read transcription volume one. Ramon's gonna catch up. I'm gonna catch up because I only started it. But um, 
Thank you so much, Emma. Can you tell people where to find you, where they can read transcription and everything? Um, you can find me on Twitter at E-M-M-A-H-O-U-X-B-O-I-S. Um, the best way for transcription right now, because like my schedule of producing new stuff is all over the map, is that you can buy the first volume at hubois.itch.io, which is my store there. And I also have a free five-page porn comic. Well, a lot of my comics are, are explicit, but this is just like a fun little like cute porn comic. There's a free one there, um, and you can also buy the full first volume. Um, I wrote a, an, an introduction to it, um, and I also got an afterword from um, Bitches on Comics co-host Essie uh, Fleener. Uh, which is to just we weren't asked to do a no forward or afterward or whatever but whatever i mean you know I, like volume two is gonna happen right like volume one was called eat me so volume two is gonna be called drink me obviously right you gotta get your alice in wonderland shit in there um but yeah and it's just yeah no i've it, it's been incredible to like finally get these comics out and just to see the responses that i've gotten and, and just the one little thing that I do want to point out that I have a couple times is that, like, the kind of, like, the most vocal and, and active kind of, like, base of readers that I have are non-binary. And, like, most of what I set out to do was to assert myself as a trans woman and explore, like, you know, the emotions and sexual imaginations of trans women um, because, like, we just never get to do that. But, like, a lot of what I'm doing even though a lot is, is for myself and asserting myself. And I do keep an eye to my audience and I do try to like, I do want to be like inclusive and open and welcoming to create a fun little liminal space with my comics. But I never anticipated how much and how deeply like non-binary people in specific would flock to my work because everybody like until you guys, like everybody who has interviewed me, or written a review um, of transcription and published it has been non-binary. Um, and so that's been really, really eye-opening to me to really kind of like be, you know, stand in solidarity, be an ally, look at my work and and how do I see what it is that they saw in there and, and inculcate it for the future. Because I find a lot of times, this is a dynamic I've struggled with in comics a lot, is that there's a lot of cis people who have big trans audiences or they put trans creators over. Um, and, you know, some of them will put trans creators over, but it's just kind of like they feel like they have a burden to be like, I have to represent the trans community in my work because I have trans fans. I have to do that myself. And it's just like, no, you should be putting us over. Like, you can maybe include us and do stuff, but it's just, like, find us, elevate us, you know? Um, yeah. You know, well, it's, it's interesting because I, you know, when I, like I said, I, I did Tumblr shit, whatever, whatever, and I would do cons, and it wasn't until I started actually doing cons that I realized, I was like, oh, my God, there's a lot of, like, LGBTQ people that really like my work for whatever reason. <laughs> but... I've never felt any need to be like, I mean, like, you know, I share, if somebody makes something, I generally will share it if, you know, they're like that. But I'm never like, I've never want to make it seem like I'm doing you this huge favor. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to, like, you have to just treat people like peers. Yeah. But there are definitely creators, I think, 
that will like it, it, it can become infantilizing yes right? absolutely like, that's the thing is like you you treat it like oh i'm this great person here's my here's my like pets that i can show off or whatever it's just like weird i i see that sometimes yeah and it goes i think it goes two ways with like lgbtq and like you know uh minority creators they i feel like people do will kind of do the same shit and i see it it's always weird to me yeah but not i don't do it because i'm a great ally <laughs> yeah and then just like you you know it's cool if you like put a trans character or two in your comics but it's just like they kind of feel like they have to do that whole work and then they're not pointing out the creators or like connecting their fan base to yeah. us you know it's just like they feel like a very paternalistic view towards us you know or at least that's how it comes off because you're not pointing the community towards us you're just taking on speaking for us because yes. you're just looking yeah right. yeah 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 like the uh, at worst it becomes this person sort of re- rebutting arguments that uh uh someone from a marginalized community might make and so they'll create a character from that marginalized community to justify their backwards opinions well that happens too yeah yeah well in my case it's like i i will constantly see it with like sort of the 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 sort of like that tumblr era sort of like refugee people that are on twitter and they're like you know they're used to the reblog shit but they'll just like you look at their feed it's like a white woman and it's just nothing but like you know just retweets of like you know uh marginalized creators and it's just like i mean what else do you have to say though you know what i mean it's like it's literally nothing but that and it just makes me uncomfortable a little bit yeah are you engaging with this like what's going on yeah right like how and why (laughs) that's just for me though but uh i mean thank you so much again for coming on uh daniel where can they follow you uh before uh we close up i wanted to uh this is what i was gonna say before but i wanted to mention that ralph niece passed away oh yeah and i am i'm heartbroken about it and i felt it felt weird if like we did a whole episode and we didn't bring it up at all i i didn't want to feel like i was ignoring that passing and i am uh my heart goes out to his family and all the artists that he inspired because i was one of them um i know so many people who were uh who to this this news happened today so we're all really processing this grief uh people who just can't believe that it happened and i guess from from los hermanos flentayo flentayo because I hit it, I hit that double L Puerto Rican style. Um, <laughs> we wanna, we wanted to uh, say that uh, Ralph, you're a legend, uh, and we will miss you. Yep. R.I.P. Oh, Daniel, where can they find you though? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Daniel Irizarry. I at the end, if you if you want to be specific, uh, you should be able to like just Google me, maybe. Yeah. And uh, you can follow me at Ramon Villalobos, of course. And also, you know, follow our our, our show account at, at Flintayo. And look us up on Patreon, patreon.com slash mexflintayo. And, you know, I, I always hear people say this about podcasts. Leave a positive review on iTunes, of course. 
And uh, thank you so much. Take it away. Hallelujah, babies.